before we get too far into this thing, well, really right at the start, thanks to Racetech, you can save with suspension work. You can save with motor work. If you mention Pulp MX code, give them the Pulp MX deal, and uh, they will help you out. Whether it's uh, getting fresh oil and uh, seals and bushings in your suspension, whether it's modifying modifying your motor, whether it's fixing your motor because you went and done blown it up, Racetech.com can dial you in. they got one-piece valves for KX and YZ250Fs as well. They support the Nuclear Blast Yamaha team. They work with Zombie Blows, of course, riders of all ages, heights, abilities, teams, Vintage bikes, whatever it is, Racetech.com will have you dialed in. So the best part, though, of using Racetech is you can save by telling them you listen to Pulp MX. All right, let's get started with the show. A Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show, presented by Maxis Tires, Renthal, Motosport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. Your continued support of our sponsors, we have surpassed 1,700 podcasts delivered with over 17 million downloads. Click that Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to the Fly Racing Racer X Podcast, presented by the folks at Maxis Renthal. Cobalinks and Motorsport.com. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. I'm Steve Mathis. With me, uh, a guy I've known for a long, long time, uh, way back in the day when he was a mechanic for Planet Honda, I believe, and then he rose through the ranks to be uh, one of the best uh, tuners in the pits. Hasn't been around the scene for a couple of years, but I'd love to catch up with him. Christian Kirby. What's up, Kirby? How are you, man? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, yeah, it's been a minute. You mentioned Planet Honda. I, I think, uh, I think I'd pitted right near you when I was with Mike Jones, uh, and you were doing Timmy's Nolan bike. Nolan bike, yeah, maybe, maybe back then, right? Um, like St. Louis, yeah. St. Louis and stuff. Right, we'd be uh, inside. I remember uh, your, you you'd put up the tent with all the the banners. Oh yeah, we had a whole even thing inside, and, and it was um, well, yeah, that was required by the team, and then uh, the canopy was, I think. 800 pieces to, to put together. Uh, it wasn't an easy up. It was like a, a full-blown canopy that you needed like some sort of engineering degree to put up. I remember that. So, um, good, funny. good times, though. Uh, hey, so we saw you with the, with the Geico team for a long time. Haven't been around the scene lately. Uh, what have you been doing? What's been going on with you? And, and do you, are you still watching the races? Are you still into them? Um, I don't watch the races as closely, but I'll, I'll check them out watch highlights um right. but i do still depending what i'm doing you know if i'm home i'll watch the entire motos or supercross program right it's tough it's tough watching the supercross program <laughs> it's really drawn out <laughs> um but uh no for the better part of the last two years i honestly kind of since i parted ways with geico honda i didn't really know what i wanted to do next mm-hmm. i kind of wanted to step away yep so i kind of had like a blank slate and kind of think about uh what i wanted to do next 
I was kind of too close to it. I wanted to step back. Yeah. I guess you'd say. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, then obviously pandemic thing hit and that was all weird. Um, so any ideas I might've had before that might've differed. Um, I've kind of just been keeping busy from home. I'm freelancing a little bit with a couple of different teams, helping mm-hmm. them out. Um, I'm doing a lot of little things just through people that reach out to me, friends right. and other connections, whether that be, you know, motor builds or electrical stuff. Right. Still do some ECU programming. I've been getting to know a handful of guys um, oh, cool. in the off-road world that's a little bit new to me. Yeah. Um, kind of the, the desert race kind of scene. Sure. Um, and kind of just keeping busy doing things at home. You know, I got friends that reach out and want something built. Uh, right. It's not, not to the point of like starting my own business or anything, but just keeping busy. Yeah. Um, awesome. But that, I, that's good. Yeah. But I did, uh, you know, just recently now, I think I stayed in the Los Angeles area for 12 months after the 19 season. And then I've been, Almost for 12 months now, I moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area, kind of Berkeley area. How the hell did you afford and, that, Kibby? Uh, I married correctly. <laughs> okay, all right, fantastic. Congratulations, yeah. Uh, it's, it's beautiful up there, but holy crap, dude, everything I, I hear and read is just the price of living is insane. So uh, I don't think it's that insane. Okay. I, it's, I think it's still similar. Well, if you were over on like downtown San Francisco, I'm mm-hmm. sure it's a smaller piece of real estate. But, you know, broader Northern Cal, I don't think it's too different to Southern California. Okay. Um, so, hey, I, I've told this story before. I, you know, I was a mechanic for 12 years. As you know, we knew each other pretty well. And I... Red Dog got hurt that final year at Yamaha, and I started. They started not taking me to the races, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like movies on a Saturday night and a dinner with my wife, and uh, this is pretty cool. And I don't know if I'd ever stopped to take my head out of the out of the uh, ground and enjoy life a little bit. Working eight days a week, uh, sixty hours a week, and doing all that was all I knew, and I loved it, and it was great. But I definitely. When I wasn't going to the races for Yamaha, I'm like, wow, so this is what life is like, like a real life. And I imagine you were there uh, the same way. Like, it, it, it's an insane schedule these guys do, uh, and you know it well, and I know it well. Um, did you enjoy that a little bit? Like, just exhaling a little bit and getting to enjoy life? Oh, for sure. The last couple of years, um, yeah, I've definitely just been living a normal life, you know. I was at Geico Honda for 16 years. Yeah. And much of that, you know, probably more than two-thirds of the year can turn into almost six and a half days a week. Um, you know, once you add in the traveling and even sometimes when you get home on a Sunday, it's not a relaxing Sunday. You're, you're fielding phone calls, um, you know, discussing game yep. plans for Monday. Um, and then you've got – you know, many of your riders are on the East Coast and they're getting a start Monday. And um, yeah, yeah it, it can feel like seven days a week. So, yes. Um, but, but to be truthful, the last few years, uh, I think my owners and management had seen uh, how many hats I mean, they were trying to delegate more tasks and try and have me take a few weekends off here and there. Because right. that was the other thing in 
say from 04 through 14, um, not only was it the pro schedule, I was going to a lot of amateur races too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, nobody had an amateur program like Geico for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, all the way back to Trey Kennard, I was kind of present yep. for the, begin- the beginning of that and what it built into. Obviously, I was able to back away at some point. But, um, but yeah, it's a lot. It's mm-hmm. a lot. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, um, you know, even just getting to know th- you know, you, you got your friends and your family um, that are doing things like it could be a casual just get together for someone's birthday dinner on a Thursday night, you know, and yeah. you're like, uh, uh, I'm not going to make it to that 7 p.m. dinner. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, for sure, man. It, it's uh, it's something else what these guys are doing. And, you know, you see guys like Leroy and, you know, he just stopped this year and, and Berluti and Goose and they did it for so long. And you're just like, man. It, that's a lot of that's a lot of hours put in, you know. For I mean, yeah, sure, those guys are making good money back in the day, but I don't know, man. It's it's a nice to just. I mean, I just I fly in Friday night, I go out Sunday morning. You know what I mean? I'm at home during the week, so I'm still going to the races, but it, it is so much easier than when I was a mechanic. So much easier. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure you've still got a full plate. I see how many different columns and different podcasts and things you got going. It seems like uh, yeah. it's busy, busy, busy. But no, the me- the mechanics that you mentioned, um, all guys that I looked up to when I they're all a tad older than me, um, and they were already very established before I got on the scene. Right. Um, I definitely looked up to and respected those guys, but even more respect for uh, how lengthy their careers were. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... You may be starting with Tesla here soon up there. That'll be exciting. Yeah. Um, for a long time, I kind of walked in the shop and, you know, in the motorcycle industry, and I knew what I was doing. So I will be a fish out of water yeah. there for a little while. Right. Um, not necessarily yeah. working on cars or, um, you know, I, I, I know my way around a car still a little bit, but I'm not quite sure what this uh, – division that i've signed up for um i'm not quite sure the tasks uh needed of me until i truly start um but definitely it'll be an interesting uh feeling to uh be the new guy right yeah oh good luck with that that's awesome uh for sure thanks um let's go back in the time machine a little bit let's go all the way back to uh uh christian kibbe in australia um how do you get into bikes uh, um and, and when do you get started riding and all of that well, you know, um, I, I guess it all starts with, you know, BMX racing at a young age, you know, eight years old or whatever. Um, then been progressing over to getting a CR80 and then heading out to the local uh, racetrack. And then I think my parents just were interested in me, you know, doing a couple of ride days or whatever. But quick, quickly that turns into signing up for races and that all kind of escalates. Um, that would have been around 1984, 1985. Okay. Um, what part of Australia, then, you know, what, what part of Australia? So in the early years it was Canberra, which they just hosted one of the first rounds of the, uh, Australian motocross championships okay. just recently. Um, but then a couple of years after that, I moved up to the Newcastle area, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, I've, I've kind of mentioned it, to you before it's the same area which Chad grew up and um craig anderson and mm-hmm. a handful of other well-known guys it, for a period of time there it was probably a little bit like the corona riverside of Australia. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um 
like depending which way you head in a 30 minute direction, you know, north, south, inland or whatever, there were many tracks to choose from that all had, uh, you know, active race schedules. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, race 125s mostly did a year on 250s. Um, but you know, I was never going to make money racing. Right. I, I could run okay at a local race, but there were guys also, um, that were racing nationals. And so you could kind of gauge the speed and yeah. that, that wasn't a speed that I had, <laughs> Right. but I, I'd raced a couple national rounds, you know, probably 20th to 30th place or something like that. So mm-hmm. pretty, pretty soon at some point you got to decide if you're going to stop spending money, you know, or I'm working Monday to Friday at a car dealership and then spending all of that money on yeah. Saturday you yeah. know? and then yeah. just trying to get through the week to get another paycheck. Right. Um, but eventually, through going to the races, I got to know um, Jay Foreman, who was running the Suzuki team in Australia. Uh-huh. And that was kind of local to me. So that worked out in my favor where he eventually uh, you know, offered me a job if I wanted to work there. And so that, that was basically in my hometown, you know, right. just the next town over. And that's like the official um, Suzuki team of, of Australia? like like cor- Yeah. Correct. So now- at the time, Chad was a – amateur rider for the team mm-hmm. and there was andrew mcfarlane and cameron taylor and any they, like you know, factory stuff to you guys or was it like a canadian factory suzuki team like same kind of deal same kind of deal for the most part yep. they were um back then pro circuit was doing a lot with jeremy mcgrath's rm250 and mm-hmm. we were i think blessed by roger to kind of have some of those pro circuit parts some okay. of the special pieces yep, yep um that's probably as factory as it got but we we had josh coppins come over and ride a factory bike um what team would that have been surveying gabor's perhaps yeah yeah probably um he came over with like lots of factory suzuki parts for a couple of rides oh, cool. um it, it wasn't to that it wasn't to that extent what was a young chad reed like um like a, if you knew him, he a little bit cocky. But if you knew him, it wasn't so much a. If you didn't know him, it was cockiness. But if you knew him, you right. knew that it was just confidence. Right, right. Um, but you know, they they were doing it on a tight budget, and you know the main thing I remember, he just rode and rode and rode the hours <laughs> that he put on the bike. Yeah, you know? just tons. Right. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of off-bike training. You know, there would have been a little bit, but there was just so many laps put in. When he heads to DeGroote's team, was that a surprise or was he ready for it? Were you like, oh, yeah, he's he's taking the next step? Like, obviously, he's talked about wanting to go to America and not being able to get anything. But, like, the DeGroote thing, to me, I didn't know much about him until I saw him on DeGroote. And I'm like, wait, you know, I knew Craig Anderson. You know, I knew Andrew McFarlane. Like, I, I didn't really know. And this is just from afar. I'm like, who's this guy getting a DeGroote ride? Yeah, by that stage, I was already in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but I knew that he was having a very successful time in his first year or two in the pro ranks okay. in Australia. All right. And again, there was that whole thing about him skipping the 125 class and going straight to being competitive on the 250. Right. So uh, that was a rapid rise, you know, from when he was 15 to when he was 17. and so moving to Europe, I think everything was happening quickly. Yep. So I think it was kind of to be expected. Whether whether I 
I don't think I can say on, you know, whether he was ready for that or not, right. but like everything, um, he was up for the next challenge and he wasn't, you know, sitting back and waiting, uh, an extra season or two. I think he right. was, you know, ready for everything that he could get is, right away. Is there a, and this, this probably isn't good research on my part, something I should have asked you about before I hit record, so, but I'll ask it anyways. I think, was there a Christian Kibbe, Eddie Warren connection somewhere down under there? Or am I thinking of somebody else? No. Okay. All right. No. Like, he was probably done racing by the time I was wrenching. But like, okay. when yeah. I was younger, I was watching him race there. The only connection I can think of, it was interesting that, you know, years later when I ended up working for Planet Honda, uh-huh. that, you know, we were going to tracks that Eddie grew up riding. Okay. I thought. You so know, I was fi- spending time in Michigan. I found Eddie Warren. It was awesome. Down under, right? He's still living down there. And I found him, and I did an interview with him. And it was amazing because he just disappeared from the U.S., right? He just disappeared in the late 80s or whatever. Uh, yeah. But somebody I knew, he'd it wasn't you, obviously, but some Aussie I know, he rode at their track a lot or something, something like that when they were a kid. But I thought maybe it was you, but I guess not. Yeah, um, I thought it might have been the mo- the Marmots or something. Yeah, I'm, maybe. I'm not I don't sure, know. but but I feel like he he might have rode at right. the property. There, I think there were some Australians that had property and had yeah. tracks on the property, and he he might have rode there. Um, so I imagine so far your story's a lot like me, Kibby. Uh, uh, growing up, moto uh, failed pro, uh, started wrenching. Um, you know, at some point I had a buddy. That, uh, well, Shane Drew, you know Shane Drew. He's working for Nolene Yamaha. Shane, Shane was pretty much responsible for me getting on with uh, Geico Honda, or back then, well, just perfect. Uh, you know, factory connection Honda. Well, then he, he's he's to blame for both of us. So, Shane, <laughs> you know, Shane was a great rider uh, who was older now, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to be a pro rider, but boy, being a mechanic and going to all these Anaheims and going to these fabled national tracks looks like so much fun and i grew up wrenching on my bike because my dad was a car mechanic and my path to america and motocross was through being a mechanic uh so that's shane was my connection open doors blah 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 that's not my story that's my story but we're talking about yours you got a little further to go when you're wrenching for suzuki are you keeping an eye open and thinking like man if i could just get to america and be a mechanic was that something that you thought of or were working towards and then somehow mike jones comes into all of this yeah, um, I don't know. Like I, I was watching ESPN race coverage. Um, the races were obviously, you know, stars, you know, all on the gate, uh, big names, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of trucks, box vans, semis, whatever in the pits. There, there's a lot happening. It's a big scene, right? And yeah. then at the same time, you've got all the, the popular movies coming out um, on DVD or VHS or whatever. Uh, you know, you got yeah, Terra Firma and yeah. Krusty Dean right. and all that. So, yeah, I, was a, I had my eye on it a little bit. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I was still kind of new to the, the factory race team mechanic thing in Australia. But I, I think I felt like after a couple of years of doing it and I was still in my 20s, I, I remember at some point I had a good, you know, group of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we socially still rode and then, you know, some of us were race mechanics and we all hung out and everything and life was good. But I kind of remember at some point like being interested in checking out America checking out the scene in America and maybe coming to work for a year or two yeah. um, and thinking that I better do it in my 20s or, I, or I'll never go. Right, right. You know? yep, yep. At some point, you just got just to gotta go. Right. Um, and and I, I didn't want to 
So the other part of it was I didn't see any real progression between being a mechanic in Australia uh-huh. with the way this the sport was. There wasn't that deep. You could be a mechanic and then maybe years later you could be a manager. Right. And I'm thinking like there's no way I can be a team manager until I'm like 35 or 40. Yeah. So it's like am I just going to be a mechanic for the next 20 years? Right. And so after doing it a few years in Australia, I didn't know everything there. And I was like, oh, maybe I can come to the U.S. Maybe I learn a few things. Maybe I come back a better mechanic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, coming to the U.S. for a couple of years, getting over here when I was 25, mm-hmm. um, that didn't turn out to stay for two years and go back home. It yeah. Turned oh, out that things kept progressing <laughs> here, and I kept learning more and more. Yeah. And you know, I, I I never knew it all. You know, you keep learning every day. Uh, yeah, I started in 96, and I remember telling my mom, like, hey, I'm going to do this for the summer, and I'll come back and figure out what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Like, I literally told her that. Like, just for this summer, I want to take some, have some fun and go to, go to all these races. And then literally never went back home. Like, that's kind of how my story was, and sounds like yours too. Um, yep. How do you meet Mike Jones? So the Australian team was comprised of two pro riders back then, Andrew McFarlane and Cameron Taylor. Mm-hmm. But they would, the promoter would bring over a few US riders. Um, Mike Jones was a, a regular, and you know other guys that had come over were Phil Lawrence and Grayson Goodman, mm-hmm. and there, there's a whole host of guys that are, I, I think B- Jeremy Buell had yep. gone over. A whole handful of guys. The promoter would uh, guys that weren't that active in the outdoor series. The Australian Indoor Supercross Series was taking place. Well, I was going to um, ask you, so these aren't the, nationals. When the outdoors yeah. was here. So these aren't nationals these guys are coming down for. They're coming down for No, indoor, they're coming stuff. over yeah. for Indoor Supercross. So yep. tight Supercross. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of a weird hybrid because it, it's it's more like a floor plan of uh, arena cross. Okay. But um, I think the jumps are a bit peakier and a bit yeah. more aggressive, a bit more Supercrossy. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, the promoter would have some U S riders come over and then I don't know how they arranged it, but basically the rider could kind of say, you know, what brand they wanted to ride and the promoter might speak to the manufacturers in Australia about, Hey, could you provide, provide a bike? Mm -hmm. Um, so we ended up providing a Suzuki for Mike Jones. Um, and so then I was kind of tasked with prepping a second bike if, if I recall, and so then I got to know Mike by, you know, when he would show up, yeah. we'd go over the details of his bike and set up right. the bars and the jetting and whatever. Yeah. Um, and quite often he'd just have like a friend with him to kind of push it to the line or something like that right, right. while I got back to my original rider, Cameron. Um, so I got to know Mike through that process. Now, is this Mike putting a Crown Royal bag and doing uh, freestyle jumps also, Mike Jones, or is this pure no, racer, Mike Jones? Is- this is pure racer, okay. Mike Jones, okay. that um, rode quite a wide bike. Yeah, yeah. Was quite, quite a um, competitive racer, yeah. And, and how were the after parties with Mike Jones? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> Fantastic, don't remember. right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so he helps you get to America, right, if I remember right? Well, no, actually, so what ended up happening was um, after the Australian motocross season, mm-hmm. um, Cameron, uh, no, sorry, my rider, Cameron, Yep. but then the other rider on the team, Andrew McFarlane, mm-hmm. he was having a pretty good season, and for whatever reason, on his own dime, he wanted to go over and ride the last two U.S. Nationals. Okay. It kind of just fell into the schedule, so end of 98, that's going to be Binghamton and Steel City, and so then Mike helped facilitate 
Andrew um, borrowing a bike and ah, Andrew okay. can show, yeah, show up with City's suspension right, and stuff. Right, right. Yeah, Steel City's right so by Mike, Mike, Mike's house. Yeah. Yeah, so Mike yep. actually arranged for a bike to be borrowed from uh, Morgan Suzuki, Morgan Racing oh, yeah. of Canada, yeah, who yeah. was doing the U.S. Nationals with Charlie Bogard and JSR. JSR. Yep, JSR. Yep. Yeah. So I had heard, um, you know, Andrew kind of putting that trip together, and I was curious just to go check out the scene, go watch the races as a spectator, yep. and I asked Andrew, does he need help on that trip? And he was taking his brother um, to help as a mechanic, but Andrew was like, yeah, for sure. I'd love you to come along and be a, a second helper. So I paid my own, you know, paid for my own uh, flight and basically kind of crashed in the hotel rooms that Andrew had booked. And so we came over, Mike loaned us a van, uh, Morgan Suzuki loaned us a bike. We showed up with suspension and cylinder and stuff, and Andrew went and raced those last two nationals. Oh, so, nice. Okay, so – you're like, this is cool. This is awesome. There's uh, there's McGrath. There's Emig, right? You're like, yeah, yep. sweet. Yep, all of that. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 honestly, I think at like a Howard Johnson or something yeah, yeah. in New York or wherever we were, staying, it would have been Binghamton. Yeah, I think I remember seeing like Jeremy and uh, would have been Jimmy Button or something coming down in an elevator, and I just look at him and they're like, sup. <laughs> right. <laughs> First yeah. time I'd heard anyone say that. Uh, ninety. So I'm looking at the RacerX vault. That's ninety seven that Andrew races Steel City. So okay, you're so off by a year. Yeah, yeah. But ninety seven. Then I went to an that epic after party after Steel City in ninety seven. That was great. That was a good. Time. Yes, yeah. yes. I I would have been there too. It would have yeah. been at the Metropole. Right. Yep. Downtown Pittsburgh. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, I think it was the Metropole. I don't, I don't know. know what it was, but, but yeah, it, it was definitely that like wharf district. Yes, wharf. There's a bridge there. there. Yeah. It was down by the yep, yeah. yep. Um, so yeah, you were already, dude. You were already in America for like one race, and you're going to the after party. Sweet, it's good. You're in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was staying at Mike Jones' house. So. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So he's making sure you're going. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so okay, then what happens? How do you stay here? So it's funny. Right after Steel City. Um, that year, the Des Nations were in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And so I bought myself a round-the-world ticket, and I was going to go on my own dime to Belgium and go cheer on the Aussie Des Nations team and, um, you know, go check out the Euro scene yeah. at the same time. I was going to have this whole off-season trip. That's awesome. Yeah. So I was getting ready to go to that, and Mike at the time was obviously quite the journeyman racer mm -hmm. um, and was always wheeling and dealing differently places that he was going to show up to race and he got off the phone it was probably a day or two before i was going to leave his place and you know yeah. fly on he gets off the phone and he's like hey I'm, I'm going to go to mexico and race for a month and they'll pay for a mechanic and everything all the expenses are paid yeah. and everything do you want to come with me and so i went to mexico <laughs> for did, four supercross races i did not know this about you i just i've never heard this one okay so you're in mexico with jonesy yeah, well, like, it's funny, like, half the U.S. field was down there. Um, I, Pedro Gonzalez yeah. uh, ended up winning the series narrowly over Mike Jones. Uh -huh. And then, but, you know, Mike Craig, Brian Deegan, Kyle Lewis, right. uh, Phil Wait, Lawrence. was this the one Brad, in San Antonio? Was there one in San Antonio? Am I thinking of a different year? Uh, uh, it raced in four cities. But not so you'd go down okay. for... Two weekends of racing, and in the middle, they'd put us up in Puerto Vallarta all week. Okay. And then we came back to the U.S. for a week, and then we went down for another two weekends of racing. 
into other cities and they put us in Acapulco for the week. Oh, and sweet. so it was like a whole little national series. It was organized by a, a promoter out of Texas. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And he might have been from San Antonio okay. or something. I, I, but I thought, one of the rounds was in Monterey. I thought there was a I don't, race in San Antonio and then two in Mexico one year. I went to the one of them in San Antonio. I don't know. Anyways. Um, so how was that? Uh, we what, went to... That like was how, amazing. Like, how was Jonesy and, and able that, to be at a resort all week and then still race that next race? <laughs> I I think the key is probably to have most of your good times on a Monday and Tuesday <laughs> and then taper off. Taper off from there. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were in now. This was awesome for you. This was great uh, for you. This stoked. So too much, goodbye to the around the world trip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then it was funny. Um, you know, I was going to do that on my own dime. Mm-hmm. And instead, I went down to this, and it was all paid for. Yeah. Um, even one race, uh, uh, myself and Lou Lopez actually raced the night show because <laughs> a number of Americans flaked and didn't show up to the later round. Okay. Um, believe it or not, I actually raced a bike that was supposed to be for Mike Craig when he didn't oh, show up. One that's week. odd. That's odd that Craig didn't show. Um, but yeah, me, me, there's I somewhere I have some sort of a printout and it's got me and Lou. <laughs> that's in, awesome. That's in, awesome. In the main event. <laughs> um, that's great. That was terrible. That was terrible because it rained and it was all rutted. Right. And uh, Deegan and Kyle Lewis were like tripling over my head yeah, while yeah. I was riding around in a rutted track that I was way out of shape at that yeah. point. Um, uh, at this point, you're calling your mom and dad, and you're like, I'm never coming home. This is the greatest thing my whole life. <laughs> I'm racing a pro supercross. Wow. I'm making money. I'm in Acapulco all week, all paid for. So. Yeah. Um, well, I was going home the next week to tell them, so I didn't have to call them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I went back to Australia and okay. worked for Suzuki for another year. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, stayed yep. in touch with Jones. He yep. came back out for the following season. And then we talked more about me seriously coming over to, to wrench for him. And that's 98. Oh, no, that's 98. You're in Australia. End of 98. Yep. Because when I arrived, I arrived right before the um, the first ever U.S. Open. Um, okay. The MGM race. Yep. Yep. The first year of that, we flew out to California and picked up new 99 model KXs and, uh, you know, stopped. To, was, uh, uh, was our vendors that were supplying puck <laughs> yeah. and picked up all the, the pieces that we wanted to bolt onto it. And then we went and rode at the Kawasaki test track and then we went out to Vegas to get ready for the race. But that was all kind of out of a suitcase and a van. Was Jones f- number 58 then or what year was it? 85? What number was it? I believe I believe he was 58. Yeah. 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 Okay. I remember that. Um. So then the 99 season, you worked for him? Yeah. Which yeah. was, we started out doing arena cross. Okay. Um, until the arena cross season was over, then we'd pick up the last couple of, uh, super crosses as did, you know, Antonez and Stevenson and yeah. a lot of those guys at the time. Right, right, right. So you, uh, that's awesome. That's a cool way to get into it. So Jonesy really wasn't freestyle guy yet. He's still a racer at this point. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Lot, lots yeah. and lots of racing. Right, um, right. there might've been after that first MGM race that I don't remember what year it was. It might've been that year that they had that four leaf freestyle deal uh-huh. out at, uh, Havasu. Yeah. I feel like it was after that we went out to Havasu. So freestyle was just kind of beginning. Mm-hmm. And so like those early freestyle events, there were a lot of racers up to them, you know, like Dave Castillo was at the first few, um, 
I, freestyle events, you know? I, there, uh, there were privateer racers showing up that wanted to get a bit more money. Yeah, like Willow and Tilton, these guys. Yeah, absolutely. They were yeah. all there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, like they all had a race background. Right. You know? Even yep. even Deegan wasn't far off of racing or, or still racing. Yep. Um, you know, Clowers had a race background. I, I would still see Clowers, you know, at Anaheim, you know. Yeah. Into 99, I think. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, I was actually at that Havasu freestyle thing where Pastrana jacked his pelvis up. We were yeah. there in practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my, yeah wife, my girlfriend, who's my horrific. wife now, was, was with me. Yeah, yeah, that was horrific. Remember? I saw that crash. Right, he just hit the dune and just stopped the top and just fell over. Like, it was not good. Yeah, fr- frame case. Right. Like, I, I think it, and it was like a frame case, what looked, he made it look like it was in just, soft soil yeah but i'm sure it wasn't yeah knowing you know there was havasu right um so you do the thing with jonesy is it the next year you go with planet yeah that was funny because so i was with jones right through um 99 supercross season and then it's not jones's plan to race any outdoors right 99 um and so then he's going to start traveling he was going to germany just like jt and you know, he was going to uh, back to Australia and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul Lindsay was the manager at Planet, and he had called Jones earlier in the year. And um, he was kind of putting word out and seeing if he knew any mechanics and all that kind of thing. And so I had actually um, told some friends that I knew about jobs at Planet. And so they were over at Planet. And so then I was still in touch with those guys. Okay. And they were telling me it was one of those deals where some of the privateer teams. This I, is Mick I think and you Jimmy. Can remember. Mick and Jimmy, right? Jimmy? No, Mick, Mick, Mick was somewhere else. This was Jimmy. Jimmy, okay. Um, and Jimmy was with uh, just Jimmy was the only Australian guy. Over okay, there. There is Jimmy alive still? Oh, how's Jimmy oh, doing? Yeah. Okay. He's alive. He's alive. Okay. I haven't talked to him in a long time. We we've maybe messaged on Facebook. Okay. Or something good like dude. That, I remember Jimmy. He was a good dude. Yeah. Yes, because he was with JS, JSR for a long time. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, um, no, so those guys, uh, the Planet Honda guys had kind of done double duty mm-hmm. with uh, the regional, you know, 125 east-west where mechanics would do both coasts yeah. to kind of save money. Right. Um, but come outdoors, you need all hands on deck. And so leading in the outdoors, they needed a, an extra mechanic. And so it fell into place for me to go pair up with those guys, um, you know, for the first yeah. outdoor of the year. Who'd you work for? That was Ryan Huffman. Ryan Huffman. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Ryan Huffman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ryan Planet Honda. Right. Yeah. It's uh, crazy because there was a lot of people that, you know, there were connections that we made for, you know, the rest of your life. So, obviously, mm-hmm. I would still see Ryan every year at, um, you know, Washougal. Yep. And then there was uh, the other one of the other riders on the team with Jason McCormick, who uh, Brent Myron was with him. Yep. Um, and then you got JSR was on the team and in Florida, we would stay, um, at the Starlings. Starlings property. Yeah. 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 And so there are all these people that I'd, I'd see for the next, you know, 20, 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. Right. Exactly. And those all from way. year, year one, right. and, uh, Rob from RG3, yeah. he was doing FMF suspension at the uh-huh. time and they were our suspension provider. I don't, I, I remember a test day with Rob, um, Having some harsh words with me on day one. Oh, really? I I, I touched some clickers without letting. Him oh know. snap! Yeah, the the kiwi I, but, the kiwi Aussie thing now gets into effect. No, right? but <laughs> but I hadn't even been introduced to him, and I didn't even know that <laughs> that he was there. 
it was a, that was a lack in management at the, that point in time. Okay. He'd just shown up to a track day. Right. And I didn't know that he was even coming out and I didn't know that he was responsible for the suspension. Yep, yep, we yep. just got it in the mail from FMF. <laughs> and he's like, w- were you going to tell me? <laughs> uh, yeah. And you're like, I don't know who you were. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks to the folks at Fly Racing for this podcast, of course. Uh, Justin Brayton, Zach Osborne, Bogle, Savachi, FlyRacing.com. Go to your favorite dealer, your favorite e-tailer, and check them out, please. If you can, the Formula Helmet, it's uh, real safe, it's real light, and, uh, man, it's real quiet. So great uh, great job with the helmet for those guys. I got a new Formula CC helmet, a little different shell on there. Um, so please check that out, a little different price point for that. Uh, the light pan has been all new and all redesigned. Their Zone Pro goggle. They're doing a good job with that as well. So flyracing.com, you can check that out at motorsport.com. Thanks to Renthal as well, the undisputed leader in global uh, global leader in manufacturing design since 69. Renthal has become notorious for relentless obsession to detail and quality through the commitment to produce the finest products on the market today. Renthal is universally regarded as the most trusted brand in the pro pits and the number one choice to the world's premier athletes and race teams. Kibby, I'm sure you used Renthal with many, many, many riders over the years. So, uh Yes. Renthal.com. Uh, check them out. Uh, thanks to those guys for coming on board. And, of course, Max's Tires, developed by Jeremy McGrath, who uh, Kibby saw in an elevator with a button back in the day. Used by the SGB Max's team. Uh, Max's.com uh, for more information. Great mountain bike tires that I use a ton of. The MXSTs I've used. I like them. Uh, light truck tires, trailer tires. Uh, Max's.com for more information on that. And Cobolinks and Motorsport as well. Uh, back to the uh, podcast. So, uh, Ryan Huffman, the first year at Planet Honda. So, you... Did you have Curry on the team then, or did he quit by then? No, you're mixing this up like a lot of people. Okay. Unfortunately, it was tricky at the time because you had Planet and you had Plano. No, Curry rode for Planet. Plano. No, Curry rode for Planet also. If he rode for Planet, if he rode for Planet, he must have rode there after 01. Okay, maybe he definitely rode for both. There was a yep. there was a time there when like Tyler Evans was at Planet and Curry right. might have been there. Um, okay. That. That might have been like 01, 2000. No, it would have been 01 or 02. Okay. I was there through 2000 as well. So what you, so um, this, yeah. So in, this is the outdoors of 99, you're working for, for Planet. Correct. Right. With Ryan Huffman right. as my rider. But then um, he, he got injured probably halfway through. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not even halfway. Um, he got injured at Millville on a downhill triple or something that okay. he probably didn't need to jump. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was, he was still pretty good. Yep. Um, but so then I think I just, you know, helped out the team and right. went to the races as an extra helping hand the rest of that season. Um, and then I was paired with Matt Walker for 2000. Okay. Do you remember, I remember um, this as a, as a kid or as a kid, I, I mean, I was 23 or whatever, but the Outdoor Nationals back then, Sundays, uh, no live TV and everything. Do you remember just being in awe of like the crowd and the way the track worked through the crowd and the, the prep of it, how it was just watered and chocolate brown? Like I, I, I remember thinking, like, dude, it doesn't get any better than this for motocross. This is amazing, like on Sunday, on Sunday morning. Do you remember those, those thoughts too? Um, yeah, maybe in a different – I don't remember so much the track. Um, mm-hmm. the track prep. I, I do remember just the overall buzz of, you know, the crowd being, I felt like they were like really in your face. Like right. I feel like the awnings and stuff in the truck back then, like people were just like almost not heckling you, but they were just, you was in such a, a fishbowl yeah, yeah. and it was such a big crowd. There were so many people, um, everywhere you went, like you would be on the, 
back of the bike, you know, yep. putting through the pits, right. trying to go to the gate. And there was just a crowd People. pushing through yeah. the crowd constantly. People everywhere. It, yep. was a, it was a big buzzing atmosphere. And I remember that being a big draw. It, it was kind of action-packed. You know? Were you kind of thinking like, hey, this is what I want to do. Like, I'm not going home. I, I want to be better at this. I want to be a factory mechanic, that kind of stuff. Do you remember the, kind of thinking that? For sure, because also – Many of the first teams that I'd worked for really didn't have a race shop right. and they weren't really performing a lot of tasks in-house yep. and they were things that I was somewhat familiar with from having you know, worked in a car dealership. Mm -hmm. um, I, I knew like how a workflow in a shop could and should be yep. and so then we were doing a lot of that flying in and doing a lot of building and prep right. at the truck yep. and you know, there's, there's limitations to that. So. I looked forward to kind of climbing the ladder and being involved in some more of, you know, the engineering side of, mm -hmm. you, you know, like where a lot of the privateers, bikes really only came together a few weeks before the season. Right. And you'd start accumulating all this like aftermarket product and bolting it on. I knew that, you know, there was more to it than that. Mm -hmm. And I was looking forward to being on a factory team or a better, yeah. um, a better run team that was really, you know, doing the work behind the scenes and having that shop to go into sure. and do all that preseason preparation. You were already getting curious, right? About like, hey, let me let me Yeah. Let me see what yeah. I can do with this bike and this team and let's get on a dyno and let's get a shop and, and yeah. Um I've told yeah. this story before. My, my first job, Kibby, was three hundred bucks a week at PJ One Extreme Yamaha. Three hundred bucks a uh -huh. week. That was my first gig. Yep. What did Jonesy pay you? Do you remember? Probably a little bit more than that, but <laughs> right. yeah, same, same, yeah, yeah. same thing. Right. Yeah. yeah same, same idea. I had, I wasn't living anywhere. I had everything well, I owned in to a be, gear bag. To be, yeah. to be fair, I lived at Mike's house and you know, a lot of things were taken care of. Right. So my, uh, expenses weren't high. Right. So you go to planet, uh, you get Matt Walker for 2000. I think he was good that year. Did Matt was, did Matt do all right? He, Number he was 40? good in 99. Okay. He was good in 99 on his privateer Yamaha. Yeah. He, I think he visited the podium a few times, or at least in individual motos right. um, on that Yamaha 99. And that's what caught the eye to sign him in 2000. But he was good. Like we went to press day for round one of the East, which was Indianapolis mm -hmm. in 2000. And we went to press day and it was him and Nathan and Nick on the PC bikes mm -hmm. and they were, you know, jumping the big triples, getting everything dialed for press day, and it was going to be a good, you know, leg up heading into, you know, the race day. Yep. Um, and he kind of made a silly move on the first lap of the heat race and ended up uh, rupturing his spleen oh, and, or did some sort of internal yep. injuries, and it was like first lap of the night show <laughs> of the season, yeah. and he, he's out for Supercross. Yeah. And so – then I actually um, helped, I want to say it would have been uh, Jason McCormick a little bit. He was going to do some opposite coast mm -hmm. 250 gate drops. And so I, I worked with him for a few rounds until Matt was healthy again for the, for the outdoors. But then in the outdoors, we were kind of plagued by um, a, a less than competitive uh, wow. engine package. Wow. I worked at FMF Honda in 98. So only two years earlier than you, the bike wasn't really any different. The air boot was pinching off any kind of airflow due to the aluminum frame, and that 125 was really slow. And it's sad because Honda, for for 20 years, Honda had a reputation of having the fastest 125s ever. But as soon as that aluminum frame came out, not yeah. so good. Not so yeah. good. <laughs> so I, I think 2000 might have been a little bit better than that yeah. 99 
bike. Mm-hmm. Um, but but again, like I was saying, that we didn't have a lot of that preseason development, yep. and you know we couldn't really quantify things without having a dyno. There was a lot of seat of the pants kind of testing, mm-hmm. and you know that's that that can get you into you know if you're up against Yamaha Troy and Pro Circuit and the other teams, you know if they're all fielding a couple of guys, then right. That's going to leave what we were doing for, you know, eighth place or whatever. <laughs> right. and it doesn't sound that good on paper. No, I was I was at KTM then with Kelly Smith, 00 and 01. That's when I was Oh, at. that's 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 yeah. a funny one cuz you mentioned that um, quite often about your win at Mount Morris. Yes. Yes. One of the I don't one of those motos, Matt was leading yes. it going away. Yes. And and Kelly was able to ride past him when Matt's bike failed yes. and I, I'd had enough of it at that point because that <laughs> I remember that day wanting to put a stock head on the bike and decompress it. Yeah. But every head in the cabinet had been milled. Milled. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was quite, <laughs> I was quite annoyed at our available mud prep. You're like, this is going to cost us everybody. This is not good. <laughs> yeah. We, right. that muddy Mount Morris, we basically went to the line with, you know, an engine that, I'm sure was no different to our Supercross spec. Right, 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 exactly. Um, uh, that's funny. Yeah, no, well, thanks for the win. I I, I remember that. Matt, well, and Pastrana uh, DNF'd in the first moto. Kelly went 1-4 yeah. on the day and uh, yep. got the overall win. So it's my, my really only national win as a mechanic, so... Yeah, which explains why you remember it vividly. Right. I think I've tried to pack, pack that away. Um, so I don't really remember the moto count and all that. Yeah. I just remember that in one of the... We were 20 minutes in and doing good, yep. and then you know that's when the coolant starts pumping, and right. it's it's not good after that. Yeah. Um, so where do you go in uh, 01? Are you still there? So I wanted to leave Planet. Yep. And I was knocking on a lot of doors. Remember how the last couple nationals? Was oh yeah. Just musical chairs, <laughs> yeah, and it was sure. always like nobody knew what they for were doing sure. the next year. Yep. And. Everyone was wheeling and dealing like the last two nationals were. Of course, that happens now, what, in, in May. Right. Um, whereas that used to be September. Um, I remember trying to get onto the squad at Emig's Edge Kawasaki team. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then also um, I knew Billy Whitley from the Arena Cross side of things, mm-hmm. and I was talking to him about something with uh, Primal Impulse Suzuki. Right. Um, and nothing really panned out, and right about at the same time, um, Mike Jones was asking me to come back and by now he was a Red Bull athlete and he had some other endorsements and he was doing pretty well okay. and he was kind of putting together basically an entirely freestyle um, kind of calendar. And okay. now now they were having multiple round um, freestyle events and yeah. um, you had the X Games stuff. And the do, to- um, do stuff, the do tour was around then, right, I think? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then as well as X Games, you had the NBC Gravity Games, yeah, yeah. Um, M- MTV Sports and Music Festival. There was a, there was a lot going on, right? And so he was able to offer me, um, you know, uh, a deal that was more lucrative than what you know probably sure. working at Yamaha Troy or something right, like that was right, offering like it, at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny. And so I was back on board with him for one and most of O two, okay, or half of O two. Dude, that must have been easy. Like, hey, uh, yeah, Jonesy, I put a top end in in January, and we'll change it again in December. It was it was crazy because <laughs> we were still getting a team green parts budget, 
and I was still kind of ordering things like we were racing. Right. Although I did have to stagger it more towards bent subframes and right thing, things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember like a twelve month period. We to to be fair, we probably had four bikes, and we kept a couple bikes in California, and we kept a couple on the East Coast. Yep. Um, but I remember a long period of time where I, I didn't even change a clutch. <laughs> That's the best job ever, Kibby. You're thinking this is you're coming from Planet Honda. You're maybe doubling your salary with Jonesy and doing freestyle stuff and partying, you know, every night but the first night before the uh, contest. So you're loving life it was, at this point. It was yeah, and like I I kept a BMX in the motorhome, and yeah. I'd, I'd drive a motorhome and go from event to event, and I'd stop off and stay at friends' houses or right. stay in the motorhome or whatever, and go ride BMX somewhere or I'd, I'd actually, we had multiple bikes in the motorhome and some of those deals we went on like video shoot out locations out in the desert and yeah. things and I could go ride with everybody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, follow along. Um, yeah, it was good times. But Greatest gig ever. Same, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it kind of weighed on me toward the end. I, I felt like I just wasn't progressing you right. know, and I needed to get back to kind of pushing myself. And that was kind of like, a, a carefree, you know, happy time, but it, I felt like I was coasting. Right. Um, so it was kind of a weird one, but I enjoyed it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. No, it sounds like fun. And you made some money too, which is good. I've told this story too before. Like I remember at the end of 98, FMF Honda let me go. And I remember calling Paul Lindsay for a job at a planet. Right. And I remember calling him and calling him and he would just, and I'm just like, Paul, just give me a call back, man. And just like, I, he would never even call me back. And to this day, like, I like Paul. We're fine. <laughs> I still think of that, though, when people call me where I'm like, dude, I, you could just call me back and be like, hey, I don't have anything. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Just, like, tell, just, just, just tell me no so I can scratch it off the list. Yeah, yeah. But if you have yeah. something, I'm going to keep calling you. And I remember like, why won't this guy call me back at least at just with something? And, and those were the times, though, like you said, Kibby, where everyone was going around the trucks and you're going, you're calling people and you got pagers and you're trying to, all that well, shit. And I also yeah. remember it was always crazy because there'd be, you know, a couple rounds left and you'd hear this like, oh, did you hear about the one guy? He's like, he's loaded. He's some guy out of Texas. He's putting together a team yeah. and he's going to pay everyone <laughs> double. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, how do I get on that deal? Yeah, and then yeah. like, it, it didn't come to fruition. No, and absolutely not. It was interesting times. Yeah. Like, uh, if I had to, you know, which – after being at Geico Honda for 16 years, you know, I, I was happy with that, um, you know, stability. And yeah. at some point yep. there, I was, I would often think back to those years where many of the mechanics on the circuit, you know, your employment was up in the air mm -hmm. every 12 months. Yep. Absolutely. It's kind of a, it, it would freak you out at this point. Oh, I remember thinking like, oh man, like Bundy's got a Ramsey and if I could just get a guy like Ramsey, you know, to take me everywhere, right? If I could just bond with a yeah. rider and you could yeah. just take, like, doesn't happen anymore. Of course, mechanics stay in the riders yes. nowadays. But, yeah, you, but yeah, back the then, team, no, yeah. Yeah, the staff get to know the equipment and knowing the rider uh, can be argued that it's less of a concern. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. But definitely the sport, the sport changed like that through the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm, I'm, I was supposed to stay with Timmy for 2000 at Chaparral and like it was like late November and they let me go. And I'm like, why are you guys let me go? And they're just like, ah, we don't have the budget. And I'm like, but I've been building like, like you're just that's how it went. It's just like, yeah, see you later. You're you're out. And it was doggy dog, right? Just you're. Yeah, and well, and I yeah. think we both know now it, the the reality of it is, you know, you have a rider that's potentially going to earn, you know, maybe half a million, and it's only so far they're going to stick their neck out for their fifty thousand dollar a year mechanic when yep. the team says 
no, you can't bring him. You yep. don't really have any more leverage. You're like, uh, yeah. you're not really going to try and <laughs> walk away on that deal. You're yep. going to, okay, I, I guess I can't bring him, but right. so, still sign me up for that paycheck, please. Yeah, absolutely. So you're working at, uh, uh, at Mach 1 Yamaha. You get a job at Mach 1 Yamaha. Um, does- I, d- I did a stint at Husky before that. Oh, you did? Yeah. I didn't know that. Was JT? Post JT. Post JT. So when- okay. So JT, when I got to Husky, there was like this really big pile of broken frames and swing arms <laughs> out in the yard. Imagine and that. Right. I think JT and Gosler um, were responsible for some of that pile. <laughs> um, no, so I remember vividly, no, our, our friend Ross Miles. Yeah. Um, he was working for Lampson. Yep. And it was Daytona. Daytona 2002, we were down there for bike week doing some freestyle stuff. And then that summertime, Jones was going to have less going on in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. he was going to go travel around again. And so uh, Ross Lampson had got injured. And so then they had taken Tyler Evans on as a replacement for Lampson for Supercross. And they were going to keep Tyler for the summer. But Ross had to go back to Lampson. And so then they brought me on board, thanks to Ross kind of putting in the word. And I also knew Tyler. Um, and so I paired up with Tyler at uh, Fast by Farachi Factory Husqvarna in the summer of 02. Okay. Uh, and so we, we yeah. lived in the Philadelphia area um, at Fast by Farachi, and we based out of there, and we went to all the motocross nationals in and, 02. And how many Araldo stories do you have? I have a handful. I have a handful. Uh, <laughs> JT Preston, they've told me a few. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, and that was funny because JT and Travis and Goose, they were all there the year before. Yeah. And so then I was there. Well, um, again, like lifelong connections. Um, Damon Conkright. Uh, oh, yeah. Dean, Dean Wilson's mechanic. He was there with Steve Mertens. At Husky. So this is his second Husky gig. Yeah, good point. I never thought of that. Yeah. I mean, the bikes are pretty much the same. So, right? <laughs> oh, oh I mean. come on now. That's not fair. That's not fair. Uh, dude, how – yeah. So who would you work for there? Evans and that's it? Because didn't Evans yeah, – so, so just Evans okay. in 02. And then at the end of 02 um, – I thought he got fired that... halfway through the year or something. No, I remember. no okay. it's funny – because I actually saw some Tony Blazier um, statistics recently. Yeah. And Tyler didn't get some of the credit that he should have got for some of the uh, the race finishes. Yep. Because it was still listed that he was on a Honda. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but a lot of his races that year, he started off as a privateer yep. Honda, but and he was already on the Husky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it was saying like his best finish on the Husky was X place or whatever but he actually did better but it was written down as being on the honda because it's it's ama it's the ama so um uh, <laughs> so no nah, we we were together right through o2 yeah maybe at the end of o2 he he might have stopped showing up to the races i remember there was a big struggle he was practicing on a honda 250 because the husqvarna wouldn't run all week right yep and he was practicing on a CR250 privateer bike and then showing up to race the Husky. <laughs> they, were, they were both CR250s. Yeah, I mean, technically so it's fine, right? I think it's fine. You could argue in the contract, hey, I was still on a CR250. Uh, the money was good though, right, for you guys? Like, they paid well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they paid you a travel allowance. Okay. And so if you could travel – Ross was a master at traveling 
um, with a frugal yep. nature. Right. And you could then profit from your uh, well, travel allowance. Ross's food if you money come under budget. Yeah. Ross's food budget never got spent. He just took would take bread and butter and eat bread and butter. <laughs> that was all Kiwi would ever eat. So perfect. He never went out to dinner. Just eat some bread. I, I've seen him drink a beer. They cost money. That's true. Yeah, he would. So, he would. He would have the odd pint. Um. Oh. So. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So husky. Uh. Ah, wow. Yeah. That, that. That's interesting. I mean, JT talks about how Araldo just called Lampson Lance all the time. <laughs> just call him Lance Lampson. So, yeah. Uh, well, I the one thing I remember that he was way ahead of his time. He had his own coffee beans with his name on the oh, can he did. and everything in a. Picture of a, D- a Ducati on on yeah. the uh, coffee beans. Uh, he had some private label Fast by Ferracci coffee beans, and wow. so I was very pleased to have great coffee on the on the team truck all season. Um, <laughs> ladies man too, Araldo, big ladies man. Yeah, I don't <laughs> have a vivid memory of much of that, but I I know what you're talking about, and I I think I saw some. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I I saw him, uh, you know, using some vocabulary that he might have been uh, able to woo someone. Right, right. Uh, so in in 03, when you get the job with Mach 1, Yamaha, and you're working for Nick Way, does all Nick Way talk about was his great mechanic in 02? Was that a lot of what he had to talk about? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, lots of praise. Nothing but praise. <laughs> well, hey, so we, I work for Nick in 02. You work for Nick in 03. Uh, he was really good on the Mach 1 Yamaha. It was older factory Yamaha stuff, which was good. The equipment stepped up from, slightly from the Triple X days. Um, he drove me a little nuts, and I love the guy to this day, as do you, I'm sure. Uh, what was it like to work for him? Yeah. Um, you know, I remember being very much wanting to accommodate, you know, everything he wanted. Yep. And for me, it was just, you know, uh, step up and put the work in. He... he it was all right with him because, you know, he trained really hard and he did everything he could fitness wise and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. So I was fine to put in the effort, you know, yep. he was demand, he was demanding, he wanted things, you know, a certain way. Um, but I was happy to do that because I knew he put in the work. I know? was the same way. Um, I'm like, this dude is giving it his all. So, yeah, you know, I yeah, need to exactly. do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. So there's a couple of sleepless nights or whatever. Uh-huh. The, the, the one thing I remember, you know, that was a pain was swapping between two stroke and four stroke. When we were in that era, yeah. everyone's trying to figure out if they want to race a 450 and then they, they're not comfortable on it and they go back to a 250, but then they're second guessing. And so we only went back and forth the one time, but, you know, we did round one of the out was on a 450 and I think we did round two on a 250. And so that week coming from Supercross, <laughs> yeah. we changed from two stroke. So four stroke, and we had to change a lot of parts over and build new crate bikes and whatnot. Um, and then to swap back again. Yeah. Uh, by the time I got to Mount Morris and, and we stayed back, you guys rented the track for a test. I remember just being so exhausted after <laughs> you know three three weeks. Yeah. Of just just do it. Yeah, trying to do everything right. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah, he had a good year for sure. Again, he was kind of starting to come up, right? I mean, he'd left Yamaha Troy and it was full privateer at Triple X. And then you guys were somewhat Yamaha supportive. So that part was good. Uh, did he do the um, pulling mechanics area? I'm going to adjust my bars. And then he hits them with his palms like up one inch and then hits them back one inch and they're in the exact same spot. And then he says, tighten them up. Yeah, but, you know, if I remember rightly, I would put like a little center punch dot and I. 
I think we got through that in Supercross where he would move him up, move him back down, and I'd just tell him like, "Hey, I watched that dot, you know, yeah. and I think it's some sort of placebo thing. You move it and bring it back to where they were." Let's just ride hard laps. And, yeah. You know, let's figure it out some other way or, or figure I, it out. I, I, told, I would send him into the back 40 and you go ride around and figure it out here. Let's not waste yeah, practice, yeah. you know. I would tell him, look, dude, if your arms are pumped, like just pull in and sit there. I don't like I'm not going to judge you if you're, you know, uh, pumped up a little bit or whatever. Like we will just chill. We don't need to come in and be like, hey, my bars. You know what I mean? Like, just just wait it out. We're fine. I'll wait. You wait. Well, when you're ready, go back out and practice. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was good times. No, yeah, we we had a good year in yeah. Supercross. It w- I remember it would have been um, Chad and Ricky and Ernesto was really that was all in yeah. front of us. Um, yeah, by the end of the year, Morocco sometimes. Yep, um, and you know the the support those guys had behind them was huge right. um, compared to how we were doing it. So we were doing really well. One of those teams well, like Nick, du- was, doing, one Nick of those, was doing well. Yeah, one of those teams like WBR Mach One uh, the. Uh, the AM Leonard KTM team, like just two years and done, just just couple, yeah. yeah you know, there's just, yeah. Just, I don't know who owned it, I forget, but they're just like, this is dumb. <laughs> I'm spending so much money. So. Well, it's funny, uh, the Mark One dealerships not far from me now. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually stopped by there not long ago, but yeah, it puzzled me at the time because there was not anywhere on the bike where it said Mark1.com right. or Mark1, you know, call 1-800 for yeah, parts yeah. or whatever. Right. Um, many people would ask me through the season, like, what is Mark1? <laughs> and so that's that was always puzzling to me. I didn't see how they were going to get a return on that yeah. and be around long term. Right. But they were, good, they were good guys. Yeah, yeah, no, it, uh, and of course, Nick's family, salt of the earth, great people, you know what I mean? Like yep. all of that. Yep. Um, so it was really, really cool deal to work. I'm stoked to, to, you know, I worked for him in 02. Didn't really know him before that, just a little bit through Kelly Smith. And he's a lifelong friend. Talk about, you know, lifelong uh, acquaintances, right? Like, absolutely still. And I'm sure yeah. you're the same way, right? So, yep. Yep. Uh, what'd you do in 04? So during 03 outdoors, Nick would quite often qualify or finish a moto near Mike LaRocca. Mm-hmm. And so we were always going to the gate kind of around the same time yep. and Shane Drew was Mike LaRocca's mechanic that season. And so I kind of got to know Shane a little bit just from, you know, sitting around and staging. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of 03, Honda was preparing for the inception of the first generation 2004 CRF 250R. Yep. And there was going to be something where Shane was situated at American Honda, but I felt like, they were going to place him at Factory Connection Racing as a crew chief. And then you also had Andrew Hopson up at American Honda. Oh, he was there then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was doing two-stroke development. And those guys somehow mentioned my name as a potential for someone. Mm-hmm. I, I guess at Factory Connection, American Honda recommended that Factory Connection hire someone dedicated to building the 250F engines, just mm-hmm. you know, assembling them rather than each guy doing it yeah. as – we get into a learning phase. Um, and so I think they'd seen me working with the Yamaha 450 um, a little bit, but then I, I don't know if they knew or whatever, but I had an automotive background, so I kind of understood the four strokes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but it was weird because the, the, it was the end of the season, the nationals are done, and you kind of at home, things go a little bit quiet. And then I get a call from Shane, and he's talking about setting up, you know, this position at, 
a factory connection. But then by the time I started there, Shane wasn't in the picture. I think something changed and then he took the head of suspension department role at American Honda. So that kind of shifted gears. So I was initially talking to Shane, but then I ended up talking to JC Waterhouse. And so then I started at Factory Connection. Okay. And so, okay. So I thought you started as a mechanic. I thought you started there as a mechanic, but no, right into sort of motor, no, motor no, guy. No, no yeah. I was just hired to build the 250F. And so when I started, we're, there was only supposed to be two 250Fs on the team, which was Gosler and Preston for the 04 season. Yep. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of blanks to fill in through the Supercross series there. But um, Essentially, by the outdoors, you know, we we're going to Hangtown with four 250Fs, was which this, meant was this JG? You know, a whole fleet of practice bikes and yeah. raceways. Was yes, JG yep. Deb- yep. debut well, JG, or whatever. JG was only a, he was only acquired that week. Oh, he was. Preston, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Preston injured his knee, I uh-huh. believe, at Daytona doing yep. opposite coast uh, big bike, and so Preston was going to be out for the summer, and then I think that. The team would have probably just gone to Hangtown with three guys. Yep. But at the time, um, I want to say we were shift racewear, for, you know, the Fox yeah, yeah. group. Yeah. And I believe, I, I believe they might have influenced us to get Josh Grant, who might have already been in shift as an amateur. Right, or, right. Or they at least alerted us that Josh Grant was a, a hot amateur prospect and that a, a potential fill-in. Um so yeah, there was a test ride with Josh maybe a week before um, that Hangtown opener, oh, okay. and yeah, uh, yeah. I, ha- I hadn't even I didn't even meet him until that Saturday race day again. Are you going to all the races? Uh, you're a motor guy, yes. so okay, so yes. yeah, you're going to all the races still for that. Yeah, and did you yep. did you like that role as opposed to being a mechanic? Yeah, um, yeah. I definitely at some point. Um, I think it's those mud race days when you're just tired right. of pressure washing. And then sometimes, um, you know, on a rebuild, you know, what, what do you do? 30 odd rebuilds on a race bike. Yeah. And not to mention the practice bike. And it, it, you can get into a flow where it's, you know, you're not really learning anything. It becomes a little repetitive. Yep. And I think I, I always wanted to just kind of grow and do more and challenge myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I kind of viewed it as like I didn't really want to do any more grips and graphics and yeah. power washing. And I wanted to specialize. Yep. I, I thought kind of the key to some longevity would be to specialize in suspension or engine. Right. I like the engine because you could – at that time, you could more easily quantify um, its output mm-hmm. rather than suspension. seemed to be a bit of a black art. <laughs> Still um, is. Yes, it is. Still is. Yeah, yeah, I I always feel bad for the suspension guy because you can't really. Well, it, it's the same for you guys now yeah. too. But um, so when things are good, they're they're good. But quite often, the suspension guy bears the brunt of a lot of um, criticism. Right. No, absolutely. Um, especially in four stroke days, right? In four stroke era, uh, more so. The uh, so you're starting as a motor guy. So yeah, you're you're. It's the early days of the FC team. This is, I mean, this is Doc Martens. This is that kind of era, right? Uh, Lamb's oil, stuff like that. Um, yep. So y- yep. the, the the growth of the team was something that you had a, a front row seat to where you're just like, you know, we're deeper, more, getting more money invested. You know, Jeff and Ziggy, and they bring Grundall on at some point, and, and this, this amateur program starts. And Jesus, Kibby, yeah, it's a, it's a whole deal now at some point. You must have looked around at some point and been like, what? <laughs> what, what, just, what, what is going on here? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely had a front row seat. 
it, um, I, I think at times I might've even had a hand on the wheel. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like Oh four, when I showed up, you know, the, just everything I, I used the word workflow earlier. Um, but like these, quite often a motocross race teams kind of put together and I had a background coming from a dealership. So I knew what, you know, it looked like to have something kind of run efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, and so everything from setting up your parts department to how the work bays are, what equipment you have, what equipment, um, or what tasks you're going to do yourself, what you're going to outsource. Um, there was a lot of the building up of the team that was happening in those early years. It just just going from what was, you know, ordered campaigning campaigning a two stroke bike to campaigning a four stroke bike. You, you know, year one we didn't even know what was a high wear part. You know yeah. what what we had to stock a lot of. What was something that didn't need to be changed frequently. That was a huge learning curve the first year. Yeah, I bet. So you're working with American Honda, of course, and as you said, uh, a Hoppo is down there. Um, and and maybe Cliff is Cliff around still? I don't know if Cliff is around. Cliff's around, but he's more four fifty, okay, um, or more big bike. And then it was more Dan Bentley and Hoppo on the small bike. But I want to say somewhere through '04, Hoppo departed. So when you um, when you went down to Honda, who's teaching you a lot of stuff? Well, who do you who, like? I mean, I've got. You know, Red Dog got hurt a couple years at Yamaha there. Bob Oliver really was like the guy to kind of be like, hey, Mathis, uh, change this piston, change this cam, uh, adjust the timing, do this, uh, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's how you work a dyno. Um, here's here's how you read a dyno. Here's what this thing's going to do. Uh, you know, and it was a real, real cool experience for me to learn from Bob, kind of like, uh, and, and then we'd test, you know, I'd, I'd dyno everything all day, and then I would we'd te- go test, and I'd listen to the riders, and I, that kind of stuff was really cool for me just like you said challenging yourself who did that for you i think like like sadly the relationship with honda was strained because they were campaigning a 250 as well yeah um as us so that was in kind of we weren't exclusively their representation in the mm-hmm. you know 125 slash 250f class until much later and that freaked up communication a little okay um so Shane was awesome right from the get-go on the – so I was an engine guy, but very quickly by 05, I started to be kind of – started to become kind of an overall crew chief. Okay. Um, slash technical coordinator. Right. And so Shane was very helpful with overall things with regard to chassis. Um, he was operating the compu track down mm-hmm. on there and we'd, we'd take a bike down and get it measured up and kind of get a game plan with a base setting and all the rest of it. Um, so Shane was huge for that. Um, Dan Bentley, obviously I'd learned a lot from him over the years, but sadly that wasn't kind of until later. Um, once they'd done fielding a rider in our yeah. class, they were yeah. a bit more tight lipped at that point. Funny how that works, uh, right? Enough, isn't, it, isn't it funny yeah, how yeah. that works? And like people don't understand that. Like I remember Wyndham got his factory stuff taken away one year. They're just like, yeah, you don't get the full factory stuff. And it's like, what? Yeah. It's weird. That comes down to, bu- that comes down to budgeting stuff. Yeah. Um, for the most part, because they'll trickle down, you know, your old rate suspension is going to be next year's test bike suspension or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I think Wyndham might've been, uh, subject to that but no i owe a lot to the late dave chase that uh ran the uh kind of customer side of things at pro circuit yeah and in those early years pro circuit 
Prescott was a, a partner with Factory Connection Racing um, for exhaust pipes and all the engine hot up hard parts. Um, so Mitch, Drino, yep. I absorbed a lot from those guys yeah, and yeah. I learned a lot from those guys. And Dave, Dave was a huge influence on me. Uh, Dave Chase. He's uh, he's passed away now, but again, going back to when I worked for Nick, uh, he was amazing. We, we were using PC stuff, and uh, yep. he was he was the nicest guy ever. I remember he stayed till seven o'clock one time. We Nick was burning up clutches as you probably experienced, um, left mm-hmm. and right, and, and Dave was. We were trying to to to, to figure out how to uh, build a better clutch basket, uh, oil flow system, and he's just the nicest guy, man. Yeah, great. He's an awesome, dude. Yeah, yeah, he was super. Super nice, and you know, motorcycles were his life. You know, he'd show up early, stay late, and you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I can't say enough good things. So it, it must have been cool for you to be like, I'm working with some amazing riders. I'm learning this and this and this. You know, cam profile and, and, and all of this stuff, ignition stuff, and then I'm seeing the riders tell me same kind of stuff I went through, where you, you're seeing the riders be like, "This is awesome. This is no good." Uh, you know, really, really cool time for you, I imagine. Yeah, um, I I wasn't you know at their level of riding, but I felt like I could relate to things that they were asking the motorcycle to do. Yep, and they didn't quite know you know uh, how how the motorcycle functioned yeah. with regard to you know what part made what do what. Yep, and so I could kind of bridge a gap. So if someone's like, I want to do this and i'm like well we got three options you know Mm -hmm. you can go to crank crank mass or compression or we can adjust the cam timing or whatever so you can kind of decipher you know their language between what they said what you saw and then you know you had a range of uh possible ways to alter the feel of the bike and then quite often you know you might attack it in two or three different ways and go, okay, I'm going to build motor A, B, and C, and you tell me which one you like. And, you know, they're like, oh, A is good, but B is good. And I'm like, okay, well, let's test again next week and I'll, I'll make a half A, half B or something. So, yeah, yeah I enjoyed that process for sure. Uh, getting involved with their amateur stuff, whether it's Trey Kennard or, or, you know, Josh Grant, as you said, you didn't meet, meet him until the first round. But then you got Kennard coming and you got Barsha coming. Um, how much interaction did you have with those kind of guys? I had a lot in the early years. Yep. Um, one, I didn't know anything about the amateur racing here in the U.S. Right. Um, I, I was very new to that because I didn't grow up um, coming up through amateur ranks here. Um, so I, I didn't really understand uh, the level of the competition or what was required of the bikes and you know the rules in the classes and what everyone else was showing up with. But then the other thing I, I put a lot of emphasis into in the early years – I wanted to really get to know the riders. They had been promised a couple of years of pro contract, and I really wanted to get to know the riders, get their trust, and have that um, transition into the pro pro ranks be Mm -hmm. really smooth. Yeah. So that the only thing they had to come to terms with was, you know, the new setting that, um, you know, the new atmosphere, the stadium, the bigger crowds, et cetera, maybe the new track. Um, but as far as working within the team that everything was already handled there. Cause we'd seen that, um, with Josh and maybe some other guys in the early years where they would show up to their first pro race and it was, you know, uh, a lot of nerves mm-hmm. and the communication wasn't there or, or just the way that 
the debrief went on race day, you know, someone might sit down and they're exhausted and they go get drinks and stuff. And then like 10 minutes before the moto, they were like, Oh, Hey, by the way, it wasn't handling good. Yeah. Like, well, if you told us that 40 minutes ago, yeah. we could have made a change. Yeah. Um, so just getting to know the, the guys and, and working with them. And so everything was clicking by the time they got to be a pro. Yeah. Uh, so we blame you then Kibby for the, uh, amateur stuff because uh, you know, the, back then it's like, it's like, man, Geico's giving them full race bikes. And Mitch is like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? And, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was really Geico slash Amsoil uh, amateur program that like sort of lifted it a little bit. I, I feel like anyways, you guys identified Bogle, Barsha, Trey, and were like, full deal, you know? Uh, uh, so, yeah, well, it was interesting to see. I have to disagree with you a okay. little bit there. Please do. So quite often the amateurs would receive a – bike from a manufacturer and mm -hmm. then their dad would disassemble it and the suspension would go somewhere the motor would go somewhere and then you know they'd get their aftermarket products and they bolt it all together and a lot of the time they'd have problems at one of the amateur nationals they'd show up with a new bike that hadn't had a shakedown and there were parts that weren't working well they weren't you know working in unison or mm -hmm. it wasn't the right setup or whatever yeah so our goal like the trade i don't know where the full race package thing You'll have to ask Trey about this, but yep. his first bikes from us were to go to Minio's in Florida mm -hmm. over the Thanksgiving, um, yep. and that was still car carbureted CRF 250s. We sent his stock class race bike there with stock grips on it okay? Um, yep. because we kind of wanted to make a statement that we're not monkeying with this bike. Right, and then on the pro side of things, well, not the pro side of things, but like the the A class stuff. Yep, the modified stuff. Yeah. I always believed, like, I would talk to um, parents of other amateur racers and they were like, oh, it's so expensive racing and I'm kind of looking at their bike and I'm like, but you didn't need to buy that, that and that. It's like, that's not any real bang for your buck, if you will. It was like, there's certain things that you could focus on the things that, you know, help your time, but like, why are you buying those hubs, you know, stock yeah. hubs would be fine. But the dad's telling me that racing is so expensive. Right, um, right. So like... For the first few years, our amateur bike were more just like what you needed. So okay. yeah, there was a ported head on it yeah. or whatever. But like we we didn't have tie bolts in them and all that. That kind of escalated over the years. It wasn't really until after '09, mm -hmm. and then that was more the influence of Mike LaRocco. And it wasn't for bling factor, but you know that generation of the Honda, they really struggled with. Um, the geometry. Yeah. And so we'd always had stock clamps on the amateur bikes, um, on those carburetor models. But then by the time Oh nine, 10 came around, I want to say we had Bogle by then. Um, it was in an effort to get the bike to handle well, that they were changing, you know, triple clamp offset and things like that. And some factory parts started going on the bike, right. but we'd never taken like, th there was always a distinction between the amateur bike and the pro bike under our roof. And it was always a couple of years behind on engine setting so that we didn't have to worry about it as much. Um, and then the hard parts, you know, we weren't loading it with tie bolts, but it, it might've got triple clamps with tie bolts or something like that. But right, we right, always right. looked over at team, team green and, you know, quite often they had pro circuit clamps and they were buying a kit suspension. So we thought we were kind of keeping it fair, yeah, but yeah. it seems <laughs> like the perception yes. out there yep. is that we were bringing these very factory bikes, right. but you know, we're also well aware of the claiming rule and we didn't want to you know right. be on the wrong side of that either
what was a young Justin Barsher like to deal with? He was awesome. Yeah. Um, he's just a ton of – prior to turning pro, like mm-hmm. he was just all, you know, enthusiasm and optimism and he, he was cool to be around. Um, yeah, I was he, ha- happy to help him. He, he was fun. Right when he hit the scene, you're just like, this guy's something special, right? Like did you, did you feel that too where you're like, this kid's something special? Oh, yeah. 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 The, the, the way he rode, you know, just everything, yeah. Yeah, just that all-in attitude right. on the bike was phenomenal to watch, especially especially in the amateur races where they're like five lap sprints. Yep. So like, it wasn't you know, uh, it, it wasn't some sort of orthodox style, right. right? It was just everything going for it in those five laps. Yeah. So it was flapping around and <laughs> back end spinning and hanging out and whatnot. But yeah, it was cool. Right. It was cool. Um, and it still was into the pro side, but, you know, I was also there again because we'd, um, you know, been working with each other for a couple of years when he got into, in the pro ranks, yeah. you know, uh, pressure situations where it's coming down to the wire and you're, you're looking for those points to wrap up a championship and things. Right. I've, I, re- I remember conversations with him and him having trust in me and me being able to give him, you know, words of encouragement. And I, I felt like, uh, it was a positive thing mm-hmm. that we had a working relationship now for quite a number of years. What about when JC Waterhouse got let go and Larocco got brought in? That was kind of a shocker. Did you see that coming? Did you did you have a good relationship with JC and and Mike? I had a really good relationship with JC. Yep. Um, and then again, when Larocco departed yep. the team, I was sad to see him go because by then we had a really good relationship. Um, but it was a strain for me to learn Mike's style. Right. Yeah. And I, 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 I get it. Sadly, yeah. I think in hindsight, I, I wasn't, I wasn't the person I am today. And I, I think I wasn't easy for Mike to work with either. Okay. Um, I was happy with how our things were going with JC and then it was a strain. You know, I think if, if there's any job you need, a say, say you need a skill set of 10 different skills. Mm hmm. I think quite often someone's going to show up with seven or eight of those skills. And so there might've been a handful of skill sets that Mike brought to the table that JC didn't have, Yep. but there was also a couple of things that Mike was, you know, um, not well versed in. Right. And so it was, it was tough for me. Mike's obviously a a legend in the sport, um, had a phenomenal career, but there were certain things in, you know, the engineering side behind the scenes that um, Mike had to come up to speed with and he and I had to come to an understanding and learn how to communicate and all those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, looking back, we, we ended up having some really great seasons and I loved working with Mike, but it it was tough to adapt to working with him at the beginning and he was new to being a manager and and all of that. So, and and that, that's a, that's a tricky one at Geico too, because right. Um, other manufacturers quite often might, introduce a new engine or a new chassis one year and a new engine another year honda's pretty well known for just an all new ground new bike from the ground up yeah and so we got that 2010 efi bike um all new from the ground up the chassis was completely different and all kind of whack and the engine was obviously a new configuration and then they hung efi on it and then we get a new team manager as well and right. so that's a lot to deal with in one off season. 
How much over the years, obviously, uh, Ziggy, uh, Rick Zielfelder, uh, a factory connection. Jeff Myshak come, comes in around uh, 02, 03, I think. Uh, Ziggy, you know, owns the team first. Uh, later on, there's Mike Grondahl. How much, if at all, did you have to deal with upper upper management uh, talking to you, calling you, making crazy suggestions or making smart suggestions or whatever? Like, I'm always curious about that. Of those three guys, how they, how involved they were, and how much they made your life uh, be hard on you. I guess. Um, it's tough to answer. I think it went in waves. Okay. Uh, at t- at times they were very very involved. Yep. There were times when, um, you know, in the first few years of the four stroke, uh, Ziggy was quite involved, and then he went through a period where he kind of backed away and focused on his retail side a bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I had a very close relationship with Ziggy. And then there was a time when I had a very close relationship with Jeff Myshack too. You know, there yep. were, there were calls on Sundays and we were kind of analyzing how the weekend sure. went and yep. we're analyzing, you know, big strategy moving forward. Um, or, or if Jeff had a plan about getting a certain rider or implementing, you know, certain changes mm-hmm. in the shop, you know, quite often we would talk behind the scenes. Right. Um, so, so okay. yeah, they, yeah, they were very, they were very, um mike grondall was I, I i think he was more or less meant to be and, and this is on his terms i think he just wanted to be a silent partner right. i think he was not wanting to get involved in day-to-day operations but kind of just on bigger pictures um i had interaction with mike but not as much right so yeah because the I mean, other guys part of the political skill of a race team of a sports team or whatever it is is managing up and making sure that your bosses are you know, happy and and they're thinking the big picture through because you're you're working on a on a micro level day to day at the shop mechanics and suspension guys and Honda, you know. So yeah, a lot of that is. Uh, I mean, you know, you have your lane that you're going to stay in, but still, it's got to be. Sometimes you got to be like, okay, I gotta I gotta handle all of this stuff, you know. So yeah. Well, the crazy the crazy thing that I don't I don't know that you know your average viewer um, of a Supercross race or whatever truly understands that. You know, you look at someone successful in the 250 class today, that was kind of put in motion. Obviously, you know, they've been training all their life coming up through the amateur ranks or yeah. whatever. But if they're successful with a particular team on yeah. a particular platform bike, that plan was pretty much put in motion, you know, four or five years yeah. earlier. Right. Um, and so you've got a whole orchestration with like, okay, this guy's probably going to point out or this guy's going to you know, reach a certain age and move to a 450 and we don't want to be left with a hole. So we want to have incoming talent, but you can't have too many yep. incoming talent <laughs> or you're going to have like, you know, four amateurs and mm-hmm. only spots for two of them. Mm-hmm. So why invest in the two guys if you're just going to give them off to another team? So yeah, there's a lot to yep. it behind the scenes. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah. You know, Z- Ziggy and Jeff were, you know, uh, putting a lot of thought into that, and and sometimes I was involved in some of those conversations. How tough did the carbureted 250F, the one that had the too big of a carburetor on it and bog like crazy, make your life, or did you just toss that carburetor and put a smaller one on? We stuck with the small carb for yeah. the for the most part. Okay, but um, I think I drove Dan Rear crazy. Um, <laughs> we had good communication, and he was a great test rider. Yep. And so I constantly, we, we kept with the, the smaller carb for the most part. Right. 
And every now and then I would bring the big carb out with like some sort of uh, significant change to the float ball or a really off the charts jetting spec or something or um, (laughs) back then we did a lot of um, the accelerator. Yeah, I remember wiring, remember wiring the cam and everything and then having a zero, a a zero step diaphragm uh, on the bottom. Oh my God, Kibby. Yeah, there was all of that. Well, yeah. And I, I remember that you pioneered a lot of this, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you you were doing a lot of years of this before other people had had to. Uh, we had some issues. We had some issues. <laughs> so we were also machining um, the accelerator pump uh, cam. Yeah, and so there were there were different profiles. Oh of that. Jesus! Yeah, yeah. Um, we never but got anyways, into that. Anyways, yeah. I would I would. Constantly come back to the bigger carb because I love the dyno numbers. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'd be right. like, Dan, 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 let's see if we can get this thing to run clean. And uh, I, I kind of. I love I'm, these. I'm, we got to get this thing working. Put, I'm sorry for what I put him through. Right, right. We, had, we had bigger issues beyond that, though. We also had a lot of starting issues back then that we thought were ignition or mm-hmm. um, carburetor related. But at the end of it, we got it sorted out. And it was just a, a camshaft problem um, mm. where. The decompression device, um, very crucial when that plays its role. Yeah, and, huh, interesting. Uh, it had it it had sadly been a little bit forgotten about yep. in the pursuit of performance right. and general cam timing. Right, that we had to then re- refocus our attention on when that decompression event was happening. That must have been an aha moment for you. Whenever you guys figured that out, huh? Like uh, just a, oh, shit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Especially when you start grabbing all the engines in the building and you come up with a um, a real good plan of attack on how to measure that. Right. Not sure if there's any engine builders out there that are going to listen to this if they've ever tried to measure that um, decompression event. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a little tricky. It's, and so coming up with a method on how to measure that and right. then um, getting that precise on your fleet of engines yep. of your, you know. 2030 engines. Were you guys getting uh, HRC stuff, uh, factory Honda stuff? Were you sourcing it yourself? Were you telling the cam builders to build to a certain profile? How much, I mean, transmissions, I guess, came from Honda. I don't even know. How much of your bike was Japanese uh, from Honda? Because I know, you know, when I worked at Yamaha, the, the Yamaha Troy guys would basically get our stuff and it would be right from Yamaha. And here you guys go and see you later, right? See you in September. How much of that was uh, your your developing, yeah, the team developing, or Honda itself saying this is what you need to run? Um, it was a mixture. Most of the time, it was um, at our direction, okay. and then we'd be requesting something. Um, often Honda might. I think in the early years, Honda would lay out like, "Hey, this stuff's available from Japan." And so we had access to everything, but then it would come out of our budget. So quite often it would be cost prohibitive in large quantities. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, maybe one guy, we, we tried to be as fair as possible for the most part. Um, so typically if someone got something, everyone got it. And then in the early days, that was a problem in the early days where we still had the mentality of a race engine and then a practice engine being different. But then as the years went by and budget increased, one of our primary focuses was to have the practice bike as close to the race bike as possible. Yep. And so it's easy enough to build that race bike um, without regard to budget. But then when you have to um, factor in how many times you would need to replace those parts in a practice bike, um, that becomes you know a large number. So 
transmissions were typically from Japan mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily a complete transmission. Quite often it was just a gear set yep. to alter a ratio of, you know, just second gear, maybe fourth gear. Right. Um, you know, third gear sometimes, whatever. You, yeah. you, might, you might just pick like, okay, let's do, do this second and third gear combo. Um, typically, a- another thing was um, Japan never really gave you too much indication on lead times. Oh, yeah. And so sometimes you've got things quickly and sometimes there was no regard for getting something before Anaheim. Um, so we did <laughs> right. things uh, in the USA as yeah. much as possible to have control over it. Yeah, that yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. You know, obviously, for a long time we were partnered with Pro Circuit, so there were a lot of things happening through them. And then after that, um, you know, we were free to partner with whoever we wanted, whether right. that was free parts or we, we paid them to do that. But I think more or less many of the bottom end parts we could get, um, you know, some Japanese parts were available, or factory Honda parts. Yep. And then the top end parts we more or less were up to our own devices using. Uh, vendors in the U.S. When you guys went away from Pro Circuit, it was a, a kind of a shock to the industry a little bit, a, a bigger news in the pits and everything. A lot of us sat around going, well, their number one rival is Pro Circuit, and they're doing the stuff for him. But, you know, Kibby's in there doing his own stuff, so I don't know. But honestly, Kibby, from what I remember, your bikes took a shot up once you left Pro Circuit. Um, and I don't know how that dynamic was with, with Peyton, because uh, he's the ultimate competitor, right? Um, what was that like? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right words here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I asked the hard questions on the, on the fly racing podcast, Kibby, you know, it, it boils down to this, like Mitch, Mitch isn't holding us back or pumping the brakes and like it, it or he wasn't. Yeah. Um, it, it's not like there's, you know, this 10 out of 10 part and he's like, no, you know, give him the nine out of 10 part. What it, what it boiled down to for me, uh, it's it's the end of the season, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going to get ready. It's the off season. Mitch runs a retail business, and so then every manufacturer, and at that point in time, let's say there's five manufacturers, they've got at least two models, if not four models, because they're doing two stroke and four stroke simultaneously back then. Right. You've got all these new bikes that he needs to develop a piston and a pipe for, and so his resources within his organization have to dedicate time to all of um those makes and models and come up with the products that they're going to sell leading into that new model year right parallel to that he's doing some work with his race team and then once he gets kind of all those things handled then he has time to work with um other teams that he's supporting and so it just kind of dawned on me like if we could improve on this bike every day of the week rather than Maybe we could only get, mm-hmm. you know, one day a week on Mitch's dyno or maybe his, um, you know, focus on helping us with our porting. Yeah. You know, maybe that was a, in a condensed block. Yep. He'd, he'd figured out some other bikes and now he was going to dedicate all week to the Honda. Um, I kind of just felt like if, if the bike was to progress more rapidly mm-hmm. and to, you know, ultimately a higher point, it, it's just man hours. We just right. had to devote more time to it. Yep. And so that was easier to do if we, you know, we had no, you know, boundaries and we could work with whoever we wanted. We could do our own work without, you know, yep. um, upsetting anyone. And, you know, there was no limit to how much effort we could put in to, to progressing. 
And so that turns into, you know, we, we can't take a, a pro circuit part and then, and, you know, stay back late at night and modify it. Yeah. But we can take our own part and stay all night. Right. And, and so basically that season going into 2011, we just spent a lot of hours, you know, there were, there were other guys and they know who they are that were working with me. Mm-hmm. We stayed a lot of late nights and we just put more and more time into it. Right. I think it showed. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like your bikes were better? Yeah, yeah. there were there were a couple of key key parts that we focused on improving, and mm-hmm. I think um, we put a lot of focus into the lower throttle opening, um, partial throttle positions mm-hmm. going into eleven and twelve that really kind of benefit you on the supercross track. Right. Um, but but yeah, it, you know, I had a lot of pressure on me. There was there was kind of like no way I was going to fail. Yeah, because it really it's really easy like. And, and that's why it's unfair. Like people look at it and like, oh, you know, you went a tick up. You know, obviously leaving Pro Circuit was a good thing. No, it's it's not because of that. You know, um, it was yeah. And, and the by reason. the same token, if we failed, it would have been because we sucked and Pro Circuit parts were faster or whatever. Yep. Um, yep. It, it just it just allowed us to put more man hours into the development. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it definitely showed. Uh, Fly Racing at- Racer X podcast with Christian Kibbe. Uh, thanks to the folks at uh, Renthal Maxis. Cobalt links and motorsport.com. Here's a little commercial uh, for a couple of companies that support the pod, and we'll be right back after this with more from Christian Kibbe. Thanks for listening to the Christian Kibbe podcast here on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast network. Really appreciate it. Interesting guy for sure. Hey, I want to just make make a couple of mentions for motorsport.com. Of course, anything over 79 bucks is free shipping. You can go to motorsport.com for OEM and aftermarket parts. Filthy Phil Nicoletti. Ryan Villapoto, myself, motorsport.com guys. Uh, they're also, they helped out the uh, Motor Concepts team this year as well, so they support the sport. Support them. Go through the banners on pulpamex.com or pulpamexshow.com if you're going to place an order. It helps us out as well. There's a whole section for Pulpamex Show sponsors that you can try to save with. So thanks to motorsport.com for all that they do with this podcast. Give them a chance if you uh, don't deal with them now. Um, give the motorsport guys a chance. Email me if you have any questions, any issues with them. I'll get it solved. Absolutely. Um, I plugged in with those guys, so I thank them for coming on the board. And, of course, Koba Links. Uh, hey, do you want to increase plushness of your bike? You want to improve your cornering? You want to gain confidence by having a lower center of gravity? If you're a shorter dude or you, uh, uh, you're you a female who has a bike and it's too big for you, whatever it is, uh, Koba Links can dial you in. They're based in Boise, Idaho, and uh, they make all of their lowering suspension links right there. They got everything uh, for links for everything from Aprilia to Yamaha, used by trail riders, motocross racers, and adventure tours. Like the first link, each one is still CNC in Idaho for riders of all ages, heights, and abilities. 15% off any link uh, and free U.S. shipping by using the code PulpMX. You can get these at motorsport.com as well. PulpMX code to save at cobalinks.com, K-O-U-B-A, links.com. Built in Boise, ridden, and raced everywhere. All right, back to the show. All right, I cut you off there. What were you What were you going to say? Uh, nothing. Okay, all nothing. right. Um, which riders... Rider or riders that you worked with that were really good at testing. I mean, you're getting a lot of these kids that don't know anything, but do a couple of them stand out for you, Kibby, as far as knowing what's going on with the motorcycle? Um, yeah, a couple of them stand out, but it's, you know, that's unfair to other people, I, I guess. Um, I, I had a really good rapport with Will Hahn. Yeah. Um, he was always up to go testing sure. and he was always curious to learn. And I, I kind of saw it coming. Um, 
that he, you know, left the organization. And, and I obviously, I, I, I don't know much. I, my other friends that go to other teams and things like that, I don't really pry to yeah. ask much about the right. inner workings of another team. But from the outside looking in, I'd have to think that Will has had some positive effect on, you know, the blue team that he's at. Absolutely, um, yeah. And uh, I definitely, you know, appreciated working with him. And I think we made some steps, uh, he and I, that benefited the the entire team. And right. maybe not just in that season, maybe for years to come. Right. Um, and then obviously I was happy to help him get his first Supercross wins and, you know, his, his championship. Um. Other guys, though, you know, even going all the way back to, say, a Blake Wharton, he had a, a different riding style than mm-hmm. some other people, and I, I learned a lot working with him. Okay. Um, you know, we had we had a bike that was perfectly fine, but then Blake would short shift it and lug it heavily, and that kind of um, made some problems, you know, arise. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to make some changes based on, you know, how Blake was riding the bike. Um, hmm, interesting, yeah. But Basha Tomac, we had a lot of success with, and we they were there, you know, during a, a time that we were making a lot of changes. Um, they they were different; they weren't so specific. It's kind of more, I think, more is more, right? And so they were just happy whenever you brought more power, but it wasn't super specific with them. How much? Um, how much of your gig was uh, you know the the, the Barshas and the Tomax and the Barshas and the Canards and the inner the inner team rivalry and the parents? I've heard some stories, you know, just, uh, and again, you're the motor guy, you're the crew chief. So maybe that's not necessarily your gig, but, yeah. you know, yeah, it, was it wasn't my gig and I stayed out of a lot of that. Right. Yeah. Um, you're just like, here I am. I'm gonna help your bike. That's it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I knew what was, uh, my role and, right. you know, that, that was for someone else. You know, <laughs> that, that's another thing, like, you know, getting into the, the, the sport, you know, you're attracted to the. The and then to the bike and what people yeah. skill such a huge part as you get deeper to you know um, how to put together a winning season um, and that had to be learnt along the way but that was definitely not what I was hired for or, or nor my specialty. Did so you have I kind of stayed yeah. out of most? No, of that. That's probably a good idea. Did, I mean, I, I heard from a team manager a couple of years ago that. You know, he would walk back from the truck at a national, and and the first rider that he saw was the one rider on the team. So he would stop and talk to that one rider on the team because it was the first guy he saw when he walked from the track to the pits, right? And it so happened that for two or three weeks, the the way you came back from the track was through the end of the tent where that rider was. Well, the rider's parent, the other rider's parent, was like, "Why are you stopping to see him first? And, you know, the guy was telling me, like, it was just from, I was just coming from the track. Like, it was just literally the way I was coming from the track for a multiple number of weeks, however we were parked. And, you know, he's just like, things like that you don't even think about, you know, and he's just like, yeah, I, I yeah. complete, I completely understand. I yep. would feel awkward at times and have to be uh, conscientious to, you know, break up that order. Or oh, you did, huh? You did. Everyone yeah. in a group. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd yeah. come back and you know we'd want to do an engine debrief and you know right after the moto, um, hey, did everything run good? Was was your bike you know making power all the way through the moto? Were there no funny noises? Do you need a new engine for the second moto? You know, is right. everything good? Do we need to make any mapping changes? All, all of those type of debrief things, right? Right. Um, so supercross, it's not a, as big of a deal. You got two riders, yeah. and quite often you can stand between the two of them and talk to both of them. Yep. Um, when they're all spread out, 
across, you know, the entire length of under the awning. Yeah. Um, and the outdoors, it's more difficult. And, you know, quite often they're trying to cool off and jump in baths and, you know, go get changed and all the rest of it. So, right. Yeah, you can tackle that by grabbing them all in a huddle or, you know, you, you got an, or, or you can talk to the ones first that you think might get easily offended and then try to talk to the one last yeah, you're like, that you you're know like, is not going to be bothered by it. Yeah, and you're like, it's Will Hahn. Will, Will's fine. Will can wait. Will don't yeah, care. Right. Yeah, and then some of them I even, you know, was on a good enough level with, I'd be like, hey, man, uh, I, I'm going to talk to you in a minute, but I'm going to go catch up with him, you know, yeah, because he's on edge or something. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, definitely yeah. that's a situation that I that team manager, whoever you're speaking of, I can one hundred percent relate. Right. Um but again that's that's a bigger thing for the management and, and honestly more often the suspension guys. Um right. but uh I I didn't have to deal with that in any real um extreme cases. Did uh did you have much to do with Wyndham's program over the years? A little bit. Yeah. Um on and off, on and off. Um, his, his program changed in how it was structured a few times. Um, and then also, he was pretty low maintenance, honestly. Um, for a while, yeah. I was programming his Vortex ignitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some Sometimes he had a factory ignition, sometimes he ran Vortex. Um, when it was Vortex, you know, I'd communicate with him on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd always talk just in general, you know, right. line selection and, you know, in his later years, he was funny because quite often the conversation was nothing about what was happening on race day. <laughs> he liked, I, I think he liked the distraction. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was a veteran of the sport and he knew what he needed to do. And I think back at the tent, um, I think he liked the lighter mood. Um, There's a ton of stories about like Ali just setting all those controls for him. Just like, here you go. And never, you know, never touching them. Never, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, here you go. Well, and, you know, he had Brian Kalmer with him for many years mm-hmm. and they had a good relationship. And Brian, you know, had everything covered. Right. So, yeah, I, w- I was around and I was involved, but yep. not, not heavily. It wasn't the same as, you know, being involved with trying to milk every little last tenth of a horsepower out of a 250F to, right. to help Tomac clinch a title or something. You right. Know? Um, did you have any crushing DNFs that, uh, you can remember? I mean, we all got them as mechanics, but oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, sure. some of them where you're just like, I cannot believe that just happened. Like some part that you had 30 hours on and it failed after five, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we were finding new ones. I've, I've kept pretty much a list. I would still have, I, I have a list, you know, from the current generation, but it was my thing. I, I would write a list, anything that had bitten me. I would write it down yep. and it's like, okay, what are we going to do to avoid this happening again? Yeah. I, I hated it. I, and there, I vividly remember even my years in Australia, like the two DNFs there yep. and a couple of DNFs with Nick. Yep. Um, and I vividly remember what caused them. And so like even DNFs that I had in Australia, like Trey Kennard winning um, Daytona, that mud race. Yeah. Like I made changes based on a DNF I had in 1996. Oh, you know, cool! Yeah, for yeah. that night. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. Then. Yeah. As far as crushing DNFs, you know. Um. Yeah, I I don't know. There there were, there were plenty. Yeah. So. Um. What about uh, mechanics and letting them go and, and and working with them and I mean I imagine 
you know, you would go to LaRocco or JC or, or whoever, um, Ziggy and, and, and my shack and at some point and be like, look, man, this guy's not working out either. He can't work under pressure. He takes too long. He, the other team members want to hang him, uh, that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, you, you were a former mechanic, so you get it, but that had to have been tough at times. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, I wasn't responsible for hiring and firing anyone. And I was, you know, privy to information. Yeah. And then quite, I, I would say 95% of the time, I advocated for anyone that had made a mistake, keeping them on. Because right. I truly felt that once you make that mistake, that you're not going to make it again. And so I'd almost rather um, someone that's, yeah. you know, living and learning. Right. Rather than someone's going to come in and, you know, maybe they're just going to make a fresh set of mistakes. Um, I liked kind of working with the guys that I had and knowing that they were going to continue on. Right. It, it was more like an attitude if, if someone had a poor attitude or whatever, which maybe at times was me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> uh, but no, I wasn't really yeah. a, a part of that. Um, I think more often than not, that was more about a rider and mechanic gelling. Mm -hmm. Um you know, because once they go to the line and I'm up in the stands, there's like a whole other dynamic. Or if I'm back in the shop during the week working on the dyno or working in the shop and, you know, there's an interaction um, or between the mechanic and the rider and or the mechanics responsible for keeping the rider's equipment up to par in right, their home state. Right, right. Um, you know, maybe if that mechanic's taken a few days off and they told the rider they'd ship some stuff out and the rider had their practice because they didn't get their parts until the following week or something. Right, right. I, I think they were more grounds for the relationship, um, you know, right. decaying between the rider and mechanic. And then the rider might request the change at the end of the year in looking to kind of shake up their program. Right. Um, um, so last, uh, your last year at, at Geico, they, they came up with a new bike. I think it was that year. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the media guy and I'm running around and, Hunter Lawrence, RJ Hampshire, a few guys are more than vocal about you know not being happy with the bike. Chase Sexton and his dad, I guess, were were, were really really not happy. Um, that you know you're the coach of a team that's struggling. You're the you're the quarterback who's the, not making the throws. You know, I'm not saying literally. I'm just saying like figuratively. Like all eyes are on you. A lot of pressure. Honda's probably asking what's going on because of the the riders are going behind and talking about it. Dude, what was that like for you? You had had to have been stressed. I, I I know I talked to you for a private conversation where where you you told me some stuff you know that helped me report on things yeah. down the road, but uh, that had to have been tough for you, man. Yeah, it, it bummed me out. You know, in a perfect world, I think I might have been getting close to wanting to step away. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the end of seventeen, knowing that we were getting an all new bike, yeah, and kind of knowing nothing about it. That was another thing that. You know, we were notoriously late in receiving, um, you know, the new bike to develop. Yep. Uh, both leading into 2010 and then also that 2018 model when they were both kind of all, you know, new bikes from the ground up. And again, coming into 2018, we got new management and we got quite a few new staff members. And so things were very different in the shop. Um but, you know, back to me and the bike, it, it was a very different bike. And so a lot of things that we would commonly try um, throughout the years were having no effect on the new bike. And so it took a lot to learn the new bike. And it was tough 
you know, Jeremy Martin won Supercross races and motocross races on it in 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're trying to quantify like, okay, I think it's okay. But then <laughs> yeah. the, you're not seeing the dyno numbers, um, the peak numbers. So, so like from 09 to 10, we went backwards on power, okay. peak power. But it, it wasn't so bad on the track because, um, you know, we got EFI that year and so it was much more rideable. But then our 17 bike made a lot more power than the 18 bike. Mm-hmm. And that was tough to swallow. Yeah. And then the 18 bike got heavier. Um, but there were so many things we wanted to try and it was in a short space of time. Originally, with new management coming in, the um, talk that we were just going to run a factory supplied by Japan. And so we got one of these factory engines, you know, pretty late in the mm-hmm. game, really. Um and right away, we realized that that engine, you know, it wasn't a huge uh, step forward right. over the production engine. And it, and it was quite expensive. And so then, you know, it kind of turned to me. At one point, I didn't even know if I was going to have a job doing development into 18 because it sounded like they were just going to use so much of the Japanese stuff. Okay. It was like a whole big new sh- shakeup. Yep. And so I, I kind of took on like, all right, I'm just going to bite my lip and I'm going to say yes, sir, no, sir, and new management, and I'm kind of going to do what they want. And so it wasn't really my direction in the early day, but as soon as we got that factory engine and it wasn't quite what we thought it might be, mm-hmm. then it then kind of focus shifted over to me like, well, <laughs> do you think you can take a stab at this? And I'm like, yeah, I'll try. Right. But it, it was kind of late. And so 18 wasn't bad. And so then coming into 19 – um, we tried a lot of other different things and I think it worked out okay for Supercross, but in hindsight, I think the direction I went for Supercross really, really hurt in outdoors okay. because we took that same, those same changes that we implemented coming into Supercross, we carried those into motocross. And then as the first few rounds of motocross went, we started trying to make adjustments and it just wasn't working. Right. Um, and so then you know, heading into the 19 off season, I was constructing kind of uh, a strategy on how to attack getting back on track. Um, obviously, I, I think the machine looks all right nowadays. Yeah. But I, I think that just comes with, you know, four years of the same generation. Uh, yeah. You know, rather well, than the, it being that, that first year and the second year, you know, it, it's just how much time you have to try different things. Yeah. Um, and then some of those things, you know, failed and you got to circle back. So, right. And, and the pressure's on you, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. And that was frustrating. Yeah. Like, I, it, I got to the point and I'd already kind of got to that point, maybe even, you know, as far back as 2016, where the wins, I wasn't really celebrating the wins. It was more <laughs> yeah, yeah. like relief. Yeah. It was more relief that we finally did what we're supposed to do. Right. Um, sure. I never really, you know, got... To, I, I didn't suffer too much from the pressure many years, but as the years went on and on, I kind of felt that pressure more and more. Um, yeah. And then there were things like, you know, riders being injured and I didn't want to be responsible for – that's another one. It's kind of a little bit thankless where you, you're constantly under a pressure to bring more performance to the table, mm-hmm. but you have to vet that performance and make sure that it's safe. Right. And so when that timeline, when you're getting pressure to accelerate that timeline, um, to get a win, like I'd rather, I'd almost rather that people are upset that the performance was, 
not progressing as it should than have rushed something and yeah. caused someone to get hurt. Because um, we had a near near incident behind the scenes with Jeremy in 18. Uh-huh. Um, but it was like a vendor part failure. Um, and we've seen it with some other teams on race day. Uh, but that just comes into the infrastructure within the team where you've got to have a good quality control system. Yeah. Um, you know, parts coming in the door and you're just automatically putting them in the bike, um, thinking that the vendor has made that part perfectly. You know, not you a good have idea. To take responsibility yeah. for yeah. that. And, you know, like you look at NASCAR or some other motorsports, F1 or whatever, there, there's a whole division in mm-hmm. that team that puts things under a microscope and makes sure that it's yeah. okay to go into the bike yeah no, um, I, I saw so I was feeling yeah. pressure from all, all all angles you know I bet um, and I bet. it was kind of looming over my head that I didn't I, I felt pressure to hurry up and make something fast but at the same time I didn't want to put something in that wasn't tested and and that's huge in the valve train area mm-hmm. um, piston area uh, valve train area is huge you can't really just come up with a new cam and spring package and to go race it. It, right. it really has to have a lot of um, test time and, and test it in the right method. And also, to be but fair yeah, to you, those uh, bikes those bikes weren't reviewed well. They weren't they didn't do well in shootouts. People were like, "This thing's a road racing motor. It's got no bottom." Well, you know, this is all it, the stuff that it, everyone was seeing. You know, it wasn't like it was a great bike to start with. Well, it's more frustrating too because we like our ten to seventeen package. Mm-hmm. You know, we had given race engines to japan and they knew the output of our 17 yeah and so then the riders are all optimistic they see the brochures and they see the advertising they see the flashy new plastics and the new bikes coming and it it's got to be pretty deflating to them when the new bike shows up and it's slower than the old bike yeah and there was no reason really for it to be slower when you have the ability to you know test against what our old package was. You have the ability to test against your competitors' production bikes. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's a tough one. It it would have been nice to kind of leave on a high. And I felt like, um, you know, I left and there was still work to be done. Right. Uh, um, But, you know, you can't always plan your exit. No, absolutely not. No, no. It, it uh, every everything ends at some point, right? Um, and not always, not always for the best. But um, I mean, yeah, I can imagine the frustration. You, I mean, you're working and the hours you're putting in. You know, it's not like you're uh, clocking out at five and going home. Um, you know, the hours you're putting in, and then you're having riders tell the media, guys like me, and and lots of whispers about the bikes being slow, and you're just like, I am doing all I can, man. And look at all these number one plates on the wall for motors that I built and developed. Well, you know? But, yeah. Doesn't it was matter. tricky, too, because cause I used to do a lot more um, kind of on the dyno and then present it to the riders and then kind of just manipulate it as needed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the new style was to take a lot more rider input but it's really difficult to have the rider kind of steer you to the direction. I think it's easier to build three examples and have the rider pick one. Yeah. Um, other than try and have the rider, it, it's almost like they're trying to um, do like a police sketch. Right. You know, you're better off just throwing in three pictures than them kind of tell you how to draw it. Right. Uh, uh, you know, we talked about that Millville test we did, and we showed up with all these different setup 
bikes and guys are riding bikes and going, Oh, I don't like that bike. And you're like, well, that's the bike you developed. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that blind, that blind test. Thing. Yeah. So that, that was and, interesting. But, and, um, and I heard Mike LaRocco had a lot to do with testing and working through stuff. And I don't know if that's the greatest thing. I mean, he's, he's not a super cross guy. He was once one of the all time greats, but at that point, I don't know how much Mike LaRocco at 50 years old, can uh, steer a kid in the right direction. You know, I don't know. I mean, well, I wasn't there, but yeah. That was prior to the new right. 18 generation. Yep. So you got to separate Mike from that. But, but um, Mike was really good. Was like, he? He, helped, okay. <laughs> he helped Malcolm Stewart a lot with suspension. Um, he helped everyone with suspension. Um, but it's not what you would think you're like oh he's a totally different weight he he could ride someone's bike and kind of feel what it was doing yep even though it wasn't set up for him um it was tough early on working with mike with regard to power delivery but once we had built the communication and knew what each other was talking about yeah um we had some really good really good test days really productive days okay all right um for sure there were some things that his you know riding wasn't the same as the guy that's going to race it right and so i think it just took a, a while to learn you know what he had good feedback on and what may not have been relevant sure yeah it's kind of a feeling out process for both of you right um well uh christian thanks for uh coming on man uh appreciate it uh really really uh glad that you did this uh, we hadn't spoken in a while i'm glad you're doing well um thanks for being uh, so honest man yeah it's great no problem. No problem. Um, I'm glad you're doing well. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll see you back in the pits one day. What do you think? Yeah, I might even go to Hangtown this year. Oh, there we course. go. Yeah, yeah. L last round. Yeah. Hopefully the um, championships aren't decided. Yeah, absolutely, right? Uh, Christian Kibbe here on their Fly Racing Racer X podcast. Nice to catch up with you, man, and uh, be well, and I'm sure we'll text soon. Thanks for the time. No worries, Steve. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. I was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Storbeck is that he never said sorry. Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And, and Magoo was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And, right. and he's got the thing, he's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't been, you know, yeah. if, it, if it hadn't been there. The Hurricane, Bob Hanna. I love the guy. I don't dislike. I think yeah. he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. That absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Holland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? Right. They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. 
it was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The Daughter, Raw Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like beating a dead horse, I mean, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did, everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny Omar. Stuff that you could, you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it, you just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in, I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes Store to enjoy these and over 800 great motocross podcasts. As the days and the months and the years.